Welcome to the United Nations of Horror. I'm Becky Booth from the UK and today I'm joined by... Dia from Germany. Mark from Leicestershire in the UK. Mike from Chicago in the United States. Today we're tackling early German horror for our January special looking at the golem, how he came into the world. Der Golem und wie er in die Welt kam. From 1920. Uh, the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Das Kabinett des Dr. Caligari. Also from 1920. And of course, uh, Nosferatu. Nosferatu, eine Symphonie des Grauens. Uh, a Symphony of Horror. From, um, like I say, 1922. But before we do, we wanted to talk a little bit about early German cinema as an introduction to these classic horror films. So um, just to throw a question out to everybody, um, you know, what's your experience of um, early or silent horror and how did you come to these films um, in particular? Um, I'll take this first. I am, I'm not that familiar with silent horror. I did read when I, you know, when I was uh, first interested in horror films, there was quite a, 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 a good book. Well, I enjoyed it. It was quite a good book uh, by a guy called Dennis Gifford called the Picture. Pic, oh, I'll start again. The Pictorial History of Horror Movies, uh, and he started right at the beginning, and it made me aware of how important Georges Méliès was to both horror and sci-fi. Um, uh, so I was kind of familiar with Georges Méliès and I was also kind of familiar with the more famous um, silent horror films such as Phantom of the Opera, Nosferatu, well all of, the, all of these ones tonight uh, and some earlier ones like uh, there was a 1914 version of Frankenstein for example. Uh, so that's how that was my experience of knowing about them. Uh, in fact I haven't seen many of them um, in terms of the ones I have seen I kind of like them um, but I haven't seen that many. Um, here in Germany, uh, the silent movies weren't shown as often on television as you uh, would believe it. They were shown in a series called The Matinee at Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock during the 70s. And uh, for me, as a 10 to 12-year-old uh, boy, it was really great to see some of them. But in the end, we only got uh, Faust, Nosferatu in a very, very short version, and Caligari in an unrestored and 60-minute long version. Uh, for me, kind of discovering early silent films, especially these uh, German silent films, uh, is more something that I've gotten into recently. Because, I mean, back in high school and stuff, we had film classes where, you know, they showed us all the Charlie Chaplin stuff and stuff like that. But I think recently, in the past year or so, where I've been getting into more collecting a lot of um, earlier films, a lot of classic films, because, because I, it just, I would like to have it in my library. That's kind of how I've come across a lot of the early stuff, like Caligari and like uh, Metropolis and Nosferatu and stuff like that. So it's been more recent for me. Well, um, similar to uh, Mike, I was lucky enough to catch quite a few um, silent films in general um, in studying film history. So things like Sunrise um, from 1927, Battleship uh, Potemkin mm. from 1925, um, The Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, and I'd really recommend if anybody's interested and hasn't kind of um, 
you know, really come across many. I think most of them are in the public domain, so it's just worth a, um, a search, especially if you're catching these ones for the first time that we're talking about today. Um, but I also looked a little bit at early German cinema as well. Um, and just to give a bit of background, like we were saying, um, before the First World War, Germany's domestic film industry was fairly unproductive as the country largely imported foreign films. And in 1914, with the outbreak of war, this resulted in a restriction on imported content. So without foreign films to show, a considerable number of newly created German production companies sprang up to exploit the market. And it's actually estimated that there were only 28 domestic production companies in the country in 1913, but that by 1919, this number had increased to 245, which really surprised me. And it, then It seems sorry. like, at that, I was just to say, at that period, I believe German cinema was second only to Hollywood in production. I could be wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. We were the second biggest uh, production country in the world this time. Uh, and before that, I believe it was France. Before the war, I believe it was mm-hmm. France. Mm-hmm. So the Fra- the French sort of productivity sort of fell off. And uh, I mean, they were fairly primitive films, you know, before the war. Uh, but the more sophisticated films after the war was were, were Hollywood and, and Germany by far. Mm-hmm. And the, the great thing about silent movies was uh, they were shown worldwide at the same time, more or less. Mm. So you could you could export any movie to any country because you hadn't uh, had the language barrier. At that time, within the isolated creative industry um, within Germany, German expressionism um, flourished. So expressionism, um, the term actually relates originally to painting or theatre um, and just presents an extreme style via mise-en-scene, um, whatever's constructed within the shot. Um, to make the formal organisation of whatever art form it is very obvious. And um, particular um, stylistic features of um, film, if we're looking at German Expressionism, include um, chiascuro lighting, um, surrealism, especially in terms of the settings, um, very fluid mobile framing, a gothic appearance, um, exaggerated acting style, and macabre subject matter, which, of course, we see... Can I ask what chiaroscuro lighting is? (laughs) Um, Basically black and white, like um, shadows. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Hard contrasts and um, very, very uh, close look to the shadows. So it was, it was, was it sort of imitating a sort of charcoal kind of palette? Yeah. And this then resulted in a fantastical atmospheric visual style, which I'm sure we're going to pick up on. And it really created a world outside of reality, um, which is, according to theorist Pam Cook, imbued with angst and paranoia in the fact of that which cannot be explained. And we see this in all the three films that we'll be talking about today. And often this other world approach is a criticism of um, bourgeois society or ruling power. And that's something I'll be interested to talk to um, you about looking at these films, particularly Caligari. Mm-hmm. And German expressionism overall is generally applied to um, films coming out of the country, obviously a selection of them, um, between 1919 and 1930. Uh, I do see ger- the German influence in, in, in a lot of films. I, th- I mean, I think Hollywood was sort of imitating a lot of this style in the, in the horror films in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And there were... Um, 
uh, I'm thinking that there were other countries that were kind of they were making films that looked very similar that came after. I'm thinking of something like Haxon, that which is mm. I think a Danish film from 1922, I think, uh, and that, which is a great film, uh, but it's obviously imitating the same style. Um, I've never been quite sure what expressionism is actually. I looked into it for for this podcast, and the description I got was it's trying to put it, you know in the frame the internal um, feelings of of the characters. Is is that correct? Is is that what people understand by expressionism? And um, expressionism in general, or German expressionism? As well, ger- I'm particularly interested in German expressionism. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd say so. I mean, I think you can take, um, I think it's quite subjective, really. But I think that, yes, it's kind of creating um, an exaggerated um, kind of mood set. Yeah. And, and like, um, you know, we were saying, like, outside of reality, a world that's kind of very atmospheric, very fantastical. For me personally, it kind of, if you're looking at cinema before that time, you've got Georges Méliès and um, his contemporaries who were kind of going down the trick route and it was all very, it was fantasy, it was um, very, obviously, otherworldly. And then you it had the theatrical, kind of, wasn't it? It was theatrical in a, in a plain kind of, not plain, but in, and certainly not, not in the expressionistic style. Um, yes. So it's, it's definitely different from that. It's a very good word, thank you. Yeah. Eloquent than me. Um, very theatrical style. And then, uh, which was kind of, it, you know, it took from the theatre of the day. It kind of projected that um, notion of what people would experience in the theatre onto the screen. Mm. Um, and on the opposite of that, you would have, um, like, the Lumiere brothers, for example, with their verite documentary style. And German expressionism seems to kind of straddle the line in between. Yeah. Uh, um, at the same time, Hollywood was kind of doing very plain. Not, uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if plain is the right word, but it was it, it was much more uh, realistic. In uh, and I use that term loosely. In terms of it, the the background was plain. You know, it was trees or it was a normal room. It wasn't. You know, the the surroundings didn't didn't reflect the, the nature of the film necessarily. Let's put it that way. No, but I must kind of pick up on your point. Definitely, you're saying about you know the feelings of the characters um mm. it kind of is an early influence of melodrama yes i would say yes so i think it kind of led into especially in hollywood and you had um italian melodramas as well as in in italy i mean i'm talking 1930s 40s here but you know you had um think films like the bicycle thief which were very very um realistic um and very um pessimistic and then you had the melodrama films um which were obviously an extension of this in a way yeah and in terms of british cinema i mean british cinema was pretty poor at this time i think hitchcock was probably the sole innovator uh in that he was taking i think some of these uh german influences i mean i'm guessing i haven't read any of this no he did he actually worked in germany for a while i believe yeah and he was kind of influenced by the american approach to filmmaking too in terms of their uh, sort of work ethic uh but i think i'm sure in some of his uh, silent films you could definitely see a sort of german expressionism um influence as well yeah i'd definitely say so the lodger looks a lot like a German movie. Indeed, exactly. The lodger does look exactly like um, some some of the films we watched tonight, uh, with a slightly more realistic basis. But in terms of tone, it, it definitely felt similar. 
before we um, start to talk about um, our main features for today, um, just to say that unfortunately we don't have a TV terror segment from Anthony Rotolo this week. Oh, it's, it's a shame. I, I do, I yeah. do really enjoy Anthony's segments, uh, but I'm sure he'll, he'll be on uh, again Pro- next week. Probably couldn't find anything in American television resembling the style. Uh, possibly he did have some ideas i actually did a well becky (laughs) and anthony (laughs) podcast with me this week uh so they were sort of tied up with that so i think that might the the problem might be down to me actually because i've sort of tied up anthony i know he's very busy at the minute so so bad bad mark bad mark (laughs) if anything mark is mark's fault yep yep (laughs) when in doubt blame mark yeah okay so um First of all, we're going to be talking about the golem, how he came into the world from 1920. You must this secret with your life. has come. And this is a silent horror film written by Henrik Galin and directed by Carol Böse. And it stars Paul Wegener. Thank you very much. Um, Wegener also starred in the pre-World War One Faustian, uh, sorry Faustian tale even, um, the Student of Prague. Der Student von Prague. Which was alternatively known as Bargain with the Devil um, from 1913, interestingly. And this film, in addition to being one of the earliest considered horror films, um, is also claimed to be the first independent film ever made. Yes. That's pretty cool. Um, the book I re- referred to earlier, The Pictorial History of uh, Horror Movies, I had a really cool still from this film. So I'm kind of, it's a film I've always meant to get around to watching. Uh, I think he's like raising a sword or something, and there's a bright light coming to. Uh, I haven't seen the picture in about 25 years, so uh, <laughs> but uh, it's still kind of I remember it, and it looked pretty cool. It's it's a very interesting movie. It's mm. a um, it's an old German story about a guy who. Uh, whose uh, mirror image gets alive and he has to fight his mirror. Oh, cool. Is it a short? No, no, no. It's a full-length movie. Oh, it's a full-length movie. 60 or 65 minutes. And it has a lot of double exposure, logically, and a double role for Paul Bignot. They were probably uh, taking Melier's ideas and uh, running with it. Yeah, and it's actually um, based on uh, William Wilson, a short story by Edgar Allan Poe. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, as well as um, Faust, um, and also a poem by Alfred de Musset, but I, I don't, I'm not aware of that myself. Um, but that's something I'd be interested to watch, because I've heard a lot about it, and like Matt was saying, I've read about it quite a bit, but I've never seen it. So, just coming back to The Golem, is the third film in a trilogy by Wigner, preceded by um, The Golem. Der Golem which was released in the USA as The Monster of Fate in 1915 and also the sequel The Golem and the Dancing Girl Der Golem und die Tänzerin from 1917 and both of these films are apparently lost which is quite um, interesting 
And the third film that we're talking about now is actually a prequel to The Golem and allowed the filmmakers to go back and kind of redo the first film as apparently the production was blighted by several issues um, during the filming of the first installment and it wasn't exactly how they wanted it to be. And the trilogy is inspired by the ancient Jewish legend of the Golem which is an animated anthropomorphic being magically created entirely from inanimate matter. About the uh, precursors to the Golem, uh, one of those, I don't know if it's uh, the first or the second, uh, is playing in the recent times. It's a modern Golem story and not history Golem story like those we get here. Oh, right. I didn't realise that. I think, yeah, that. it's the sequel because it's um, listed as partly a comedy. Apparently, it involves... Well, it, the main it doesn't look really comedic. Uh, the few scenes which are uh, already available aren't looking comedic to me. That's what really surprised me when I read that comment, but oh, I, I don't know. Germans, the Germans aren't uh, the comedic kind. <laughs> we, are, we aren't really funny. <laughs> You're funny, dear. <laughs> that's that's my style. <laughs> Only in English. In German, I'm not funny. <laughs> so basically, before we kind of get into a few of the kind of plot points, what did you think of the Golem and the acting in particular from Wigner? I, uh, well, I mean, it was very stylized, and uh, and I'm kind of used to the the sort of exaggerated stylized acting f- from this period. Um, I kind of liked him as the Golem. Uh, especially when he was in, he was actually less expressive. I thought he was quite good as the sort of imposing figure. He wasn't quite as big as I thought he was going to be, actually. For some reason, when I see pictures of him, he's on stairs, so you can't quite get the height measure. But he, he wasn't quite as tall as I thought he was going to be. But I kind of liked it. But I also kind of liked it when he got angry. You know, there was a part where he got angry, and the sort of expression he pulled was kind of almost gargoyle-like. And I kind of liked that, too. So uh, I kind of liked it. I thought his performance was quite good. I really love the movie. And uh, what I especially, especially like is uh, the way the golem moves. It's a little bit like Frankenstein's monster later in the, um, in the 30s movie. There's a big influence in Frankenstein. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up on that. Definitely. Yeah, I saw influences of Frankenstein. I also felt that some of the of the way this film looked kind of remind me of Metropolis, as well. Not just the fact he, it was like the robot Maria, but the sort of some of the rooms that you see in Metropolis kind mm. of remind me of some of this sort of archways in this. Uh, what did you think about the staircase in the uh, Rabbi's room? Um, I can't say I particularly noticed. Oh, the, the circular one in the middle of yeah, the room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it looked a bit dangerous to me, especially when yeah, it was carrying right. a woman down there. <laughs> and the way he carries the woman down, the, where he, there's a scene where he has to, like, squeeze into this, like, little corridor on the stairs, and he, like, crushes her. Uh-huh. Like, you can tell it's a dummy, because if that were a real person, all of her fucking bones would be broken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what did you think um, of the golem, Mike? He's not given a lot to do, obviously, but... I mean, he fulfilled his role very well. Yeah, I thought the like you guys said, it was very Frankenstein-inspired. And I was kind of surprised about how well he brought that creature to life and how much I really enjoyed watching him play that on screen. Yeah, I really um, 
enjoyed the performance. And like Mark said, that bit where he kind of um, gets angry and grimaces. I thought that was actually quite scary. But just to kind of pick up on a, a few plot points, it's actually quite a complicated plot mm. out of the three films. Surprisingly, um, yeah. Yeah, that, I, I really thought that. It's, and it's very it's, well written. And it, it, it's fast moving, even it today. It is. It really is, because I've heard a lot of criticism against um, silent films say that people, I think, just generally used to the fast um, editing and, you know, um, action and pace that we kind of have today in modern movies. So many people that I speak to will not either read subtitles or watch um, anything that doesn't have sound. Um, And I think I really enjoyed it. And I didn't think that it was slowly paced, did you? No. No, not at all. No, it yeah, was um, it proceeded at a fair, a fair old uh, pace. So just to kind of, like I say, pick up on a few of the narrative points. It's set in a Jewish ghetto in medieval Prague, and the rabbi there um, is reading the stars and predicts disaster for his people. Um, and did you enjoy that opening scene with the effects? It was cool looking. I like the um, I like the look of the sets and everything. When when we're looking up at the stars, and you kind of see the. Um, light shining behind the i guess they were like these hilltops or something looked it, it almost looked kind of martian to me because it was so kind of exaggerated what that's the kind of look i like from german expression stuff i like that kind of as you said earlier dreamlike kind of look and i, I thought it was really really cool looking yeah i thought it was uh, it was fun i also actually quite liked the rabbi uh, in these scenes too yeah. uh he had a, quite a lot of presence yeah I'd, I'd agree with that and i think it was very reminiscent this opening scene of georges melier um, for me, anyway. Yeah, yeah, I know um, what you mean. It did, yeah. yeah, it definitely did. It looked like a more technically proficient version of Melio's stuff, yes. Yeah. You, you, um, you really were expecting that the stars became alive and yeah. <laughs> right. little girls grinning and dancing. <laughs> <laughs> so the um, Holy Roman Emperor then signs a royal decree declaring that the Jews must leave the city before the new moon and he sends out a knight Florian to deliver the decree. And the rabbi then begins to create a huge monster out of clay, the golem, and he will bring it to life to defend his people, he says. And in a very elaborate magical procedure, he summons the spirit Astaroth and compels him, as per the ancient texts, with his assistant to say the magic word to bring life. And the word is then written on paper, by the rabbi, which is then enclosed in an amulet and inserted onto the golem's chest, and the golem then awakes. Um, what did you think of this scene? Well, I just want to go back a bit. I, 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 do, <laughs> I hate to sound obsessed with this kind of thing, but I really, I kind of like the um, the rabbi's hat. <laughs> it was like a sort of big leather cook's hat. I thought, man, that is a good hat. <laughs> and Florian, was it this? Was it this scene or later? Was Florian was wearing one with a big kind feather. of feather thing, wasn't yeah. it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. But no, the rabbi's hat in this really uh, struck me as kind of in, and the whole uh, and the whole magic ceremony I thought was very cool, very mm. cool. Yeah, so I, I I liked all of that leading up to, and I liked the scene where he sort of you know animated the golem too. And, and uh, uh, all the cost- costumes looked very very interesting and very realistic, I think. Those those uh, Jewish customs from the uh, Middle Ages. Yeah, I mean, we, I was going to talk about it later, but we see a scene later with uh, uh, the Jews, and they're wearing almost like witches' hats. Mm-hmm. And it got to me, and I started thinking, well, are what we think of as witches' hats common hats in the Middle Ages? But we're just 
so used to them just seeing them on witches that they're witches hats now yeah, yeah i i don't know i don't know but it just it was interesting that, that like loads of them was wearing this like this same hat which looked just like a witch's hat to me and it's really not practical i think mm. <laughs> not for low doorways no <laughs> no and it's kind of it's an area of kind of folklore um in terms of the golem that i'm not familiar with so it's definitely made me want to research you know that a bit more for sure i i only know the Meyering novel from 1880 and uh, this novel was the foundation for the movie okay. but has has a different story a slightly different story and a lot different atmosphere um a little bit darker i think no, I'd be, I'd be interested to catch it for sure. But the golem then awakes um, and he is tamed and used as a household servant. In the meantime, the rabbi is summoned to the palace for the emperor's festival. And there, there is an arrival of Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew. The court begins to laugh at him and the palace suddenly crumbles. And as the building collapses around them, the golem intervenes and props up the falling ceiling, saving the court. And then as a sign of, of gratitude, the emperor pardons the Jews and allows them to stay in the city. But what did you think of this particular scene? It reminded me of um, Cecil, some of Cecil B. DeMille's mm-hmm. stuff, actually, uh, which obviously I think came later. It was it was kind of, it had that biblical Samson, Hercules, yeah, that Yeah, Samson kind of is what I read from it, which I thought was quite... Yeah, it was, um, I thought it was okay. I thought, yeah, it was fine. It, it, it was an action sequence, an early... Yeah. It wasn't so fast as today, but it looked like an. I didn't quite understand the part of it. It looked to me at the beginning of the scene, the golem was stopping them getting out. Mm. I couldn't quite tell what the what the flow of the action was. Uh, I know he saved them, but I could, it looked to me like he was possibly keeping them in, but I couldn't quite tell. I thought he was attacking them at first, so it, it kind of threw me off. Yeah. Did you guys read it like that? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. I found it quite, okay. Quite, I didn't misread it. That's why I found it quite an interesting scene because you kind of, you know, like reading it one way and then it changed. Yeah. But then um, after this, the rabbi and the golem return to the ghetto, spreading the news that the Jews are now saved. And the rabbi returns to his house and then begins to notice erratic behavior in the golem. And he reads that upcoming astrological movements will cause Astaroth to possess the golem and attack its creators. Let, let me jump in here. And this is the moment where the scene where he tries to avoid uh, the people to, from fleeing from the palace in perspective. Because this is the first time Astaroth gets to the golem and he is able to uh, put this away and save the people. This is how I read it. Right. Yeah, I can kind yeah. of see that. The rabbi then removes the amulet and is called down by his assistant to join in the celebrations um, outside. And as the community rejoices, the assistant goes in to inform Miriam, who is the rabbi's daughter, and bring her to the synagogue, but finds her in bed with the evil Florian, um, this time without hit the feather in his cap. <laughs> and um, I thought that was quite an interesting scene. Into the, the first time I saw Florian uh, uh, delivering the decree, I thought he was gay. 
it does come across as very it's very movement and yeah. <laughs> it's a very easy mistake to make considering just yeah. all that shit he's wearing yeah <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he is um he does move uh yeah a little bit, a little bit gay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, it, yeah, it's interesting how he uh, how he interacts with Miriam. It, it's a, it's 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 not the 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 sort of um the you know the sub story of their affair isn't is handled fairly clunkily in yeah. in this, isn't it? It's not it's not oh, yeah. the main thing. It's really more of a a sort of a MacGuffin to sort of reanimate the golem at this point i think that's that's what i think it's there for yeah you, doesn't you, feel so organic it doesn't feel like they would uh, in any way uh, fit together <laughs> those, those two yeah it kind of feels a bit tacked on but i mm. found it an interesting um kind of sub story in regards to the way that she was presented it just you know a woman kind of who is actively kind of sexual and she wasn't punished ultimately in any way for that no it was fairly um i want to say modern but it was fairly non-judgmental of that particular behavior i think in a if cecil b demille for example had made this film (laughs) the wrath of god would have would have uh would have you know some rocks would have fallen on her or something absolutely (laughs) yes Uh, Uh, she'd she'd have gone over the side with florian i was gonna say she'd have been thrown off instead of him yes (laughs) yes So the assistant, in, in jealousy, uh, reanimates the golem and then orders it to remove Florian from the building, which he does so literally by taking him <laughs> to the top and just literally throwing him off. No, I, like I love that the dummies bit. in this. I love <laughs> yeah. the dummies used for the bodies. They're so good. <laughs> Yeah. More, more realistic than in Italian movies of the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> yeah or as Gage in um, Pet Cemetery. Mm. Went through the the attic. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I kind of like the whole scene with the golem going nuts. Frankly, yeah, yeah, that was quite satisfying. But like I say, um, I did. I, we kind of passed it now. But I did like that when he, he his ang- his expression when the amulet was attempted to take from him, and he was aware of it. You know, he had that kind of grimace, which kind of reminded me of the Pazuzu statue in in <laughs> going back to that it reminded me is that gargoyle kind of uh, you know bearing her teeth it was kind of quite cool we have to come and, back to pazuzu in each episode yeah <laughs> and hats and hats yeah um, i haven't finished with the hats yet I, I, no and there's that more to say about hats. mentioned we always try and get that one in as well um no he kind of reminded me of my dog when he does that face and you're trying to take <laughs> so the golem, now under Astaroth's influence, has killed uh, Florian, and the assistant and Miriam flee, but he, the golem, sets fire to the building, and Miriam, in true kind of female-style false unconscious, <laughs> and then the rabbi's assistant rushes to the synagogue to alert the praying Jews of the disaster, and at this point, the golem's kind of tearing up the city. Upon their arrival at the rabbi's house, they find that it's burning and that the golem and Miriam are missing. And despaired, the community begs the rabbi to save them from the rampaging golem, who's literally dragging Miriam around the streets. Oh, yeah, like, man. This was brutal, wasn't it? It was really brutal. I found that quite I funny. thought it was just like a random corpse. And then like, then they're all like, oh, he's got Miriam. And I was like, yeah. that's the chick? Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, uh, she's got a strong scalp to be dragged around by her hair like that all over the place. And, it was and, like, whoa. And the, go- and the golem has a strange way with women. 
<laughs> Could you elaborate? <laughs> I don't know. I, I never tried it this way. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah. That's why yes. I'm single. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was proper caveman kind of stuff, wasn't yeah. it? it? Really was. It really was. It's around falling unconscious, though, isn't it? Really. Yeah. The golem, like he's dragging her around, but he releases her and breaks the gate open when the rabbi performs a spell that removes Astaroth uh, from the golem. And outside of the community, the ghetto, the golem sees a group of girls playing. <laughs> then, um, one of them removes the amulet as he picks her up because now, obviously, he's quite, he's quite passive. You know, all the evil has been taken out of him. And she like I say, removes the amulet and it just made me laugh how he just dropped her completely. I was really hoping that there was like a pad underneath to catch her. That is quite brutal. She seems to really drop. It's, it's a girl. He has some waivers. <laughs> <laughs> and then he falls back dead. The Jews gather at the gate to find his body or its body and rejoicing and praying, they carry the golem's body back into the ghetto with the Star of David appearing on the screen as the film ends. So what did you make of that kind of end sequence? Uh, just a moment, just a moment. Let me tell something about Wegener. Paul Wegener is uh, very underrated and, and unknown. Uh, he was before he gets to uh, got got to the movies. He already was a very famous uh, stage actor over here in Germany, and uh, was student of Prague, where he was uh, the first time to see on screen in two roles at the same time. He got the let's say film bug, and he always had interest in uh, Asian Asian philosophy was a Buddhist and had about 100 statues of Buddha in his living room. And so you can see this in his uh, own movies, like uh, Das Haus des Yogi, The House of the Yogi, where he had an uh, invisible man raking havoc in 1916. This is a few years before Universal started the Invisible Man uh, series. He had flying knives in this movie, uh, a moving chair, an empty moving chair, a girl kissing an invisible man, very, very interesting things. And another thing with his Asian influences is uh, in a later movie named Leben the Buddhas, Living Buddhas, where he used early stop motion effects and a 50 feet big guy to bring order to a revolting city. In the Second World War, he had the problem that uh, because of the golem and all these Jewish influences and his Asian influences, he couldn't work at all. Uh, he lived with one of his, with the last of his five wives in a great house, and all his ex-wives also lived with them. It's like who was this American guy who made it in the same way? Uh, Fred Owen Ray, you know him. Doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, no. it's, a, it's a B movie director with seven wives, a Mormon. Oh, and, Mormon. <laughs> and in this way, uh, um, Wegener also lived. 
And uh, over the years, of course, his money was uh, um, all spent and he was a very poor guy. And so he was forced to work in 1944 with Vitalan. You know Vitalan, the director of uh, The Eternal Jew, the propaganda movie? Yeah. Yeah. And he was forced to work with him with uh, a special uh, announcement of uh, Joseph Goebbels. So he wow. never... She never get over, got over this and never appeared on screen again and uh, lived the rest of his life as a stage actor again. So much for this biogra- biography. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's a story. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wait, wait till I come to W. We mourn on. And that's, um, did you also say that there was a documentary? about Wigner as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw it and these are the information I took from it. The problem with the documentary is it's from the 80s here from uh, German television and no subtitles and uh, the quality is uh, horrendous. It's nice, you said. Oh, it's a shame. Yeah. I, I will try, if I can if I can find any time, I will try to do some subs for it and push it on YouTube. Cool. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be interested to see that. It's a very interesting documentary, especially. No, no, it sounds it. Yeah, I mean, we'll post on the website if 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 you get to do that. Yep. So, uh, and, and obviously the Facebook group too. Yeah. And for sure. So, does anybody else kind of have anything they want to add about the film, or do you want to give ratings? It, it was obviously a strong influence on some of the Universal stuff. Uh, Frankenstein, as Dia said, uh, and 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 I think maybe the Mummy movies as well. There was definitely sort of the way the the, the Colum acted and and the surroundings. I I thought it it was pretty. You're know, gonna have to forgive me on the pronunciation. Vigna, uh, I thought it was pretty good as the Golem. It, I can, yeah, it really suit. You know, it, it really acted the part, and and the character of the Golem, the little character that was meant to be, did come through. It was exaggerated, but it, it did work. It gave mm-hmm. this hulking, you know, clay thing a character. Worked for me. I also have to say it's uh, obviously the influences in the Universal series, and I think that depends on um, many German uh, uh, film workers emigrating to the U.S. because of money and uh, work reasons. So if you closely look into the Universal catalog, you will find a lot of German names. Yeah, definitely. That's a good point. I'm happy to rate it. Uh, personally, I would give. Uh, I felt this was like a seven out of ten for me. Uh, I would say uh, eight out of ten. <laughs> and Mike? Well, out of all three of the films we're going to talk about today, this is my favorite out of all of them. I totally fell in love with this movie. Uh, really? I just thought, yeah, I, I found the story really interesting. This whole thing with the the rabbi, or so bringing this monster to life to kind of make sure his people don't get pushed out of the city. It was just something I, I found more interesting than I had suspected. I thought it was just going to be another creature feature. As we mentioned before, just another Frankenstein. But mm-hmm. I liked it. I thought it was uh, surprisingly very well written. I liked a lot of the art direction. And a lot of the sets were cool. I liked a lot of the performers. I thought they did. Because obviously back then in, in silent movies, acting was, I don't even know if I'd say broad, but just very obviously much more animated because I, you know they can't talk so they're trying to bring it to life as much as possible and I thought they did that perfectly in here without going too over the top certainly 
not as over the top as they're I, I'm going to mention another movie does later today. And mm-hmm. I thought the performers were very good. And I found myself really entertained all the way through. I'm going to give this um, a 9 out of 10. I, I totally love this. Wow. Um, I'm surprised just because of how like loved I think Nosferatu in particular is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can completely agree with all of Mike's points personally. And in addition to the influence on Universal films especially, I think as picking up on I think Mike mentioned the kind of sci-fi link to Metropolis Mm -hmm. and I think this film out of the three we're looking at today is a little bit more restrained in its design and does kind of provide an influence quite a bit in terms of sci-fi you know looking at later films like Forbidden Planet I think you can see a lot of that within it so overall agreeing with everybody I really enjoyed it and I would probably give it an 8 out of 10 so we're all, <laughs> yeah, we're all in agreement, which is good. Good start. So moving on, the next film that we were going to talk about is uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari. From uh, 1920. I feel like I'm on the Eurovision Song Contest. <laughs> um, <laughs> disappoints. <laughs> Germany <Which> disappoints. <laughs> <laughs> which um, has been regarded... Critically, I know that um, Roger Ebert, the late critic, was a big fan and he regarded it as the first true silent horror film. This is directed by Robert Wiene and written by Hans Janowitz, Karl Meyer. And it is considered the quintessential work of German expressionist cinema with a very exaggerated visual style. And the script itself was inspired by various experiences from the lives of its writers. Janowitz um, und Meyer. They were both pacifists who were apparently left distrustful of authority after their experiences with the military during World War One, And allegedly, Meyer drew from his experiences of being invasively tested during the First World War when he proclaimed to be mentally ill to escape the conflict, which is quite horrible mm-hmm. thought. And the film's design was handled by... Hermann Warm, Walter Reimann and Walter Röhrig. Who decided to go, go with the obviously fantastic, very graphic, exaggerated style over a naturalistic one. And this is a point that I wanted to um, discuss, particularly with Dia, that metaphorically, Dr. Caligari, the character, is said to represent the Weimar government. Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. I don't and think it's a political message in the movie. 
even if uh, most of the makers were uh, on the left side of the political spectrum. They, they couldn't risk to do something uh, political, even metaphorically, back then. It would have been too risky. Yeah, I, I never saw any me metaphor like that in this film, ever. No, no. Uh, it's a deep, you know, very uh, submerged one, if it is. It doesn't feel like that at all. It might be a metaphor on other things, perhaps, but I never saw it as a metaphor on that. It's an interesting reading, though. I actually have yeah. to disagree with you guys on that, because I know when I first saw this a few months back, I watched it, and then I did some reading up on it, and I should have reread that stuff again, because I actually read a lot of stuff where they were... Uh, a lot of the makers were very influenced by certain political aspects over in Germany. I wish I could bring more. I wish I could bring up some examples, but I can't think of any right now. I should have gotten wherever um, I read that from. I mean, I'm, the reason perhaps I didn't see that sort of metaphor is I never. F if it's a metaphor on anything, it's if if he's meant to were, were the Weimar government sort of murderous to opponents on. I wasn't aware of that if they were. It was a, a war government. Okay. That, but any government at this time was. It wasn't dictature or something like this. This came later, <laughs> over here. Yeah. yeah. Back then, mm. everything was okay, uh, absent from a little bit of war. I'm, I'm still interested in hearing your points, though, Becky. <laughs> well, this isn't my reading. Like, like, Mike, this is something that I've picked up from reading into the, the film. But for me, it's more with Cesar, the uh, sonambulist, who's supposed to be symbolic of the common man conditioned like soldiers to kill. Bearing in mind that this film was released in 1920, which was one year after the First World War ended. Uh, and seeing it uh, as a metaphor for war, I can see it. But the Weimar Republic, I don't know. But yeah, that's why I wanted to kind of bring that up with you. I thought it was a really interesting reading, but I can kind of see it. But I was more, personally, I found the kind of the conditioning of, you know, the everyman to mm -hmm. be sent out to kill by a, you know, a ruling power. I kind of read that, I think, more overtly. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes more sense. Mm -hmm. It's just the specificity specificity of uh, the Weimar government that confused me. Um, yeah, a general metaphor of governments or, or generals sending out troops mm -hmm. uh, who have to follow orders blindly, um, no matter the sort of moral or you know actual con consequences of that. It's, it's kind of there. Yeah, I can see that. Because because Caligari was a, a big movie. It was a gross film as uh, it, it was announced. And nobody could risk to uh, go against the government with a gross film, with a movie uh, which started uh, in all Germany at the same time and was um, prominently acted. There were uh, very important actors in the movie, very well-known actors. Uh, Becky, you, you, uh, um, you got your inspiration from the Caligari to Hitler book. Krakauer. Yeah, I mean, he makes some interesting points. I mean, he makes, he he says, makes in, in any, any critic and any book he writes, he makes connections to the war and to yeah, the government. Yeah, but I mean, some very kind of, I think, insulting yeah, readings. He's, yeah, he is, he is a, a, a war veteran from World War II, and so he has this hate against this war and this government. 
And so he finds connections in any way possible. But not only to the kind of government, but just to German society, mm -hmm. it seems to be. I mean, in the book, he basically says that Caligari reflects a subconscious need in German society for a tyrant and is an example of Germany's obedience to authority and mm -hmm. unwillingness to rebel against deranged <laughs> authority, which is so insulting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I just really wanted to kind of raise that with you, dear, and get your... <laughs> I, don't, I don't need a leader. Uh, I yeah. am a leader. I think, I think we know what dear thinks. <laughs> I think I agree with dear as well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm my own leader. I, I have my own podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think what people tend to do is kind of, uh, film critics, I think especially, is layer readings and kind of associations with the Second World War on this film. And in some way, you really have to kind of strip that away because this film was released in 1920. Yeah, that's so, ridiculous. That is ridiculous. You know, <laughs> So I, I think you need to kind of, yeah. obviously, you can talk about that. I think that's why the, the Weimar government is, went, is, is mentioned, because they're talking about how things have progressed and kind of built to the Second World War. But like we said, this, pre, this film preceded the Second World War. So I think you have to take it, you know, in isolation. Yeah. I, th I think his metaphor doesn't bear close scrutiny in the specifics, but in the general, i.e., you know, governments, order soldiers, you know that metaphor applies to the British government in in World War One as well, uh, and maybe the Americans too. I'm, I'm not quite sure what the Americans, and certainly the Russians. Uh, yep. So you know, it's not a Weimar Republic thing; it's a World War One thing. There's the no, Russians no. Uh, talking about the Russians uh, this time around. The Russians were making political movies, real political movies, mm. and they feel and look a lot different than Caligari. Mm. I think it's just a kind of case of kind of attacking the, the Weimar government as well because of the kind of state that Germany was in at that time with, you know, the reparations and mm. um, hyperinflation mm. and throwing that against it, which, you know, Great Britain didn't kind of have. Yeah. So I don't know whether they're kind of, but that's getting way into the kind of yeah. historical well, aspect. Mike, Mike, what did what what the stuff you read was it about specifically the Weimar government or the the sort of? It was more about the World War One kind of stuff. Yeah. So yeah. I think we're on the same page. We see, we yeah, can see yeah. the metaphor with World War One. It's just the Weimar government specifically seems. Okay. seems uh, yeah, I don't know anything. About that. Yeah. <laughs> or even you know World War Two. I mean, you it cannot be a reflection of World War Two. It's made twenty years before it. You know, it's, right? It's ridiculous. No, definitely. So if we jump into the plot, because we've spoken a lot about the film without really touching on anything. Sorry, Francis, our protagonist recalls the horrible experiences um, that he and his fiancée Jane recently went through and that is kind of framing opening uh, device and then we um, are taken into the main bit of the film which is his recollection and the annual fair has arrived in um, Holstenwald and Francis and his friend Alan visit the cabinet of Dr Caligari which is an exhibit where the mysterious doctor reveals the somnambulist Césaire and Cesare is awakened from his death-like sleep. And when Alan asks him about his future, Cesare answers that Alan will die before dawn. Oh, can, we, I can, I, yeah, can, so I, can we start talking about some of these early scenes? Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'll Mike, stop, Mike was going to talk about this scene. 
go no, ahead, I, I always just I always just find that scene funny where his friend is telling him, no, man, don't go up there and ask him anything. This is bad. And then he goes up and he says, when am I going to die? Oh, tomorrow morning. <laughs> he's just like, God damn it. <laughs> I love that um, every time. But the whole film, firstly, uh, Caligari's hat. <laughs> and I thought, you know, I'd like a hat like that. that was <laughs> but it did actually make me think quite a lot of this and Nosferatu, obviously, made me think of the Babadook. Babadook was reflecting uh, elements of this and Nosferatu quite strongly. And, I, you know, you could see it really, obviously. I also quite like some of the stylistic choices in their clothing. I wasn't a fan of the 2D backgrounds and the shading uh, at all, actually. Uh, but I did like the fact he had like white hair but with black streaks in, and he was wearing white gloves with black lines on. Mm. It was almost like a, a sub, uh, you know, an unconscious mimicking of a skeleton. I think that's probably a bit mm. strong, but it had that kind of feel to it to me. So I kind of liked some of the clothing design in, in, with that Caligari had. No, no, completely. And I, I personally find Calgary to be absolutely terrifying. Mm-hmm. Like the makeup, obviously, we'll talk about Nosferatu, and I think that's effective. But I think the makeup in Calgary is really, really effective. Mm-hmm. Especially Cesar. Yes, yes, and he like literally looks like a corpse, and just the actor's very kind of slim figure in that black outfit just gives him the most amazing silhouette. It's, it's um, Conrad White. It's always great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's very, it, it kind of reminded me of the Joker. Uh, you know, the Joker mm. looked like it was influenced. Well, that's interesting. Of, yeah, yeah. Um, the, there was the a the touch of that too. The, the connection is clear. Conrad White uh, played the uh, man who laughed. Yeah, which is the, clear. The Joker was definitely based on yeah. that character, definitely. Yeah. But this, see, is it? I will never put no. I, Sure, how to pronounce this? Is it Cesar? Is it Caesar? Is it Cesare? Cesare. Cesare. It's, it's yeah. from French, but it's it's translated into German. Cesar. So you have the harder Cesare, not uh, Cesare. 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 <laughs> <laughs> you know, so not the gay ah. language. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear me! It sounds like a pervy phone call. <laughs> There you we go, need, Mike. Black we Christmas. Need, we, we, <laughs> we need an adult, adult rating on. <laughs> so the next morning, Alan is found dead, and Francis suspects Cesare of being the murderer after a series of similar murders, um, and he starts to spy on him and Dr. Caligari, and Cesare actually goes for Jane next, who is the woman that. Um, Francis and Alan were both in love with and obviously Alan's out the picture so Francis is in and the scene in which he actually comes to her room I find to be it's kind of up there with um, the scene in Nosferatu I think in terms of early cinema when it's a lot of women out safe in their beds just these men just kind of wandering in but Yeah, and if they wake up, and if they wake up, they faint again. Anyway, so it's like, <laughs> oh, wow. isn't that normal? <laughs> it's normal over here in Germany. <laughs> wow, women have to leave the room open that the guy can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, German history. <laughs> yeah. So, what did you make of this scene where he basically goes to stab her, but then he's 
amazed by her beauty and she wakes up. She does put up a little bit of a fight to her credit before she thinks. Yeah, she does. So, so you know, kudos to her. It's- but then he decides to abduct her in a, in a similar kind of scene to the golem at the end mm-hmm. where he kind of takes her off with him. And that scene in particular is kind of a standout one in terms of the set design. And I know that the film was quite uncharacteristically of its time yeah. because obviously there was no sound. So people were filming more or less outside because they didn't have to kind of worry about the sound. And it was filmed entirely in the studio. Um, and I think that was kind of a bridge as well. It was kind of working towards um, talkies, you know, the the period of, of sound being introduced. But what did you make of the kind of mise-en-scene and that really, really exaggerated design? I love the art direction in this movie. Mm. It's It's got some, like, I know, um, because Mark, you were saying you didn't like a lot of the 2D backgrounds and everything. I didn't like I the backgrounds. I like, I like the practical stuff, but I, I really didn't like the backgrounds, personally. Yeah. But yeah, go I, ahead. I loved it all, I especially I, I thought it was very dreamlike and cool, and especially more at the end. I, I know we're about to get into the ending, so I'll let you kind of give that away later. But where that where the reveal there is, mm-hmm. it makes that dreamlike kind of quality make a bit more sense. And I just find it so cool. I love just the weird angles and everything is very pointy. It's like a Decepticon. I, I love it. I think it's so cool. That's when the production designers are painters. Right. All the, all the guys who um, made the art direction were uh, at first painters and then came to the movies. That's cool. I didn't know that. And so this time they had a free hand, that a carte blanche to create it. Yeah, it's very imaginative. Mm-hmm. Very, very cool. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think my my you know dislike is a personal thing. It it just reminds me of sort of cheap theatre stuff personally certainly the way they were you know away from the town and you saw the town it was a cool picture but it was it was cl- it just it just looked like a picture to me there was no attempt to make it even i know what you, you know mean, oddly yeah. real whereas uh, the actual practical weirdly angled stuff i liked i like that perfectly fine and i, I like that in a feel you know um if you want to see a really good example of someone that was clearly influenced by this but takes it to a really good level son of frankenstein Mm-hmm. Uh, most people talk about Bride of Frankenstein or Frankenstein as being an If you look at Son of Frankenstein, the house in Son of Frankenstein yeah. is spectacularly good in terms of conveying this sort of expressionistic nature in 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 the sura- practical surroundings. You know, the three D stuff rather than mm-hmm. the backdrops. I really like that anyway. So I think that's possibly why I don't like when it's not made into three D. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it makes sense. Mm. I mean, I like when Cesar was on the rooftops, you know, and, and stuff like that. I, I do like this. I, again, I saw other echoes in this that, not, you know, I was thinking not just Frankenstein, but things like King Kong, Beauty and the Beast kind of stories. You know, it, it's kind of, you know, it's beauty that uh, sort of... Re- yeah, tamed, but also brings out humanity. You know, it, it's things like that. It was kind of, it was kind of cool. Yeah, and I would definitely go with... I really enjoyed it in terms of the, the set design. And I do think it's very it's the most expressionistic film out of the three that we're talking about today. And it's for me, it's like a merge of painting and theatre. Yeah. And it's just kind of kind of melded together. But I really enjoyed it. But also, what did you think about the, the music and the kind of sound design that went with that? Uh, which music did you have? Yeah, I don't know. 
This is a problematic uh, silent movie question. <laughs> uh, I did, very, I, very true. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the copy I watched, uh, I did try different sound. It, mm. it, 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 it was very neutral to me, the music. It was fine. It didn't disrupt, but it, I, I wasn't really paying attention to the music, which I think is probably a good thing. It was kind of complimenting yeah. what was going on. Uh, but I tried different modes, and, and I didn't find, you know, either was fine. I, I uh, have a copy here with the original restored score uh, played from a, a relatively big orchestra with a um, modern pop music score and I saw the movie uh, played with the original kino organ, the cinema organ. So the question, what do you think about the movie, is a little bit strange in this moment. But I would say the original cinema organ is the greatest thing you can ever experience when watching a silent movie. Because it's a normal organ with uh, sound effects added. And these sound effects are practical sound effects. And not uh, electronic uh, overdubbed or something like that. Mm. It's a really great experience. Uh, the, I think the, one of the problems is when music's to the full like this, we're, you know, modern viewers are just not used to music being so mm-hmm. prominent. We're used to music all the way through films, for sure. You know, if you see Star Wars, there's music yeah. all the way through, but we just, right. it's just more background, whereas this is foreground. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of liked, it was some of it, the, some of the stuff I listened to was definitely, it was slightly discordant but that matched mm-hmm. the film quite well so that was fine you know I, I, it, it, it was um, you know it was a nice match right. Pro- probably you got the original score because right. it's very very strange and and uh, atonal at times it's um, it reminded me of Stravinsky you know in places yeah, and things yeah like exactly, that. exactly I mean I think back in these silent films the music really carries the movie just as much as like Mm. a dialogue would or an actress performance would it's such a big central part to it so like if the if the music kind of fails it it really hurts the story and i think this movie is really helped along by its music it's not some brilliant score like say from like nosferatu which i love the music in that but i think it really pairs along the with the movie quite well and i i don't know which version i saw it sounded like it, it would be the original music but i mean i i don't know it, and what i think is is with horror films and more action-oriented silent films the music is less important you can try you can have different music and it doesn't affect your viewing of the film i think in silent films it's melodrama suffers the most from slightly inappropriate music you can watch some films and if the music isn't right it, it kind of you you lose some of the effect uh depending on the film it depends if they're using close-ups it, the music's less important you know if it's acting it's focusing on say rather than the scene setting i think uh, for some reason horror horror so maybe i've always been lucky in seeing it with decent music but it seems to me that silent horror seems to be quite robust the the imagery seems to be quite robust so the music is not as important but i might have just got lucky so the reason i kind of mention the uh, the music or the sound design is uh, because I actually saw the cabinet of Dr. Caligari with a live band mm, playing with it in the oh, cinema. I bet that's awesome. It was so cool. really amazing, actually. And it really enhanced all of the 
the visuals. I know what you're saying, Matt, completely, that it's very universal in terms of the melodrama and the exaggeration of silent film, that it doesn't necessarily need the music. But just an example is towards the end, there's a character playing the piano in the air. Mm -hmm. And that bit just really, with the musical accompaniment, it really added a sense of... Uh, kind of an ease and it made it very very strange yeah um, I, so I will actually my point before where i said sometimes music doesn't matter i think when the music matches up to the imagery it's re it really works it does yeah. really work so yeah sorry go on so but kind of you know on a similar point to that with the title cards in in mm. this film like we were saying before that films could be very easily exported at this time because they were silent and you just put obviously different title cards on them or in them. This film used an advertising campaign apparently with posters that used the same detail as the, the title cards It designed in a very similar way. The line on the posters was, du musst Caligari werden. You have to become Caligari. This was, oh really? This was the whole uh, uh, campaign. You have to become Caligari on any bus or, or, or tram or wall. You had uh, um, with with those expressionistic uh, typo. You have to, this typography is, is, is very special in the movie. It was really nice. The yeah. the, the cards in this were really nice. Yeah. yeah, and only only those line. You have that's, to be that's Caligari. That's a really interesting line, considering the end of the film, which we'll get to. Absolutely, absolutely. But I, I loved the fact that it had such a kind of focused advertising campaign, and that's not something I've kind of heard of from this time before. Yeah. Even then, uh, uh, movies had advertising campaigns. Uh, people seem to forgot this. Yeah, I was, I'm only... The only bit of advertising I'm really aware of is the American sort of... Because uh, that's all that's talked about in some of the books I've read. You know, you know, they talk about, for example, Lon Chaney Speaks is, is what, one a really mm -hmm. early campaign I, I remember. <laughs> but only the American, not, not, not uh, other countries. And the use of those graphics and that kind of typeface was actually very... It received a very negative response and the film was very much associated with low art and obviously particularly mm -hmm. horror which is very interesting when you kind of take its status now as a piece of you know art cinema oh yeah it's considered a very important film isn't it category yeah and it still works yeah completely completely yeah. so just to kind of pick up where we left off in the plot cesar has abducted jane and he has been followed by her family and servants. And we get that wonderful scene of him running through the city. And when he can't run anymore, he gently places Jane down on the ground and runs away. And at the same time, Francis and the police are investigating the home of Dr. Caligari. But the doctor also succeeds in slipping away. And we get a very kind of uh, stormy, nightmarish scene of him kind of running away. And... Francis pursues the fleeing doctor and sees him disappear into an insane asylum. And Francis enters and discovers the truth behind, allegedly, all of these mysterious events. So, spoiler warning, we are basically told that Dr. Caligari is the director of the insane asylum and he is accused of the murders and we see him being restrained in a straitjacket 
And then we go back to the framing story of Francis talking to another man. And it's slowly revealed that Francis is himself a patient in the insane asylum and Calgary is the director. And I thought that was a fantastic ending. It's a great ending because you, you don't expect this movie to have a twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just really kind of throws you off. because it, it, Especially because it's a twist we've seen done, as, I mean, since decades after that. Still today we see a twist, done, the kind of, oh, it was all, he was actually crazy the whole time. It's, and it's always done so badly. But here it's done just really well. It just, it just really works. It's, it's almost every insane asylum movie has this plot twist. Exactly. Think about the ward. <laughs> I, I also think um, most insane asylum films, from maybe the, the early sixties back, from this to say the early sixties or even mid sixties, used the way they showed the insane insane asylum opera. You know, the 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 lunatics, as it were, just sort of standing around doing odd things. I've, right. I've seen it. It reminded me of Shot Corridor, the American film Shot Corridor, the sort of. Um, exploitation movie about you know a journalist going into an insane uh, you know it's like that was a 50s film and it was like mm-hmm. i could see it being influenced from this you know either directly or indirectly but you know that kind of what it was showing there kind of ah yeah i've seen that a lot in other you know later films did you kind of think that the framing narrative worked to kind of achieve that effect well yeah personally yeah yeah i thought it was good uh, yeah, yeah, for me too. <laughs> the only the only thing wrong with it, I think, was kind. Of, you felt you felt it coming. Was it was they were a bit too acting a bit too odd in in the first part of the framing story. But this with is a, that's Jane a minor. In yeah, particular, yeah, yeah, when yeah. she walks past. Yeah, she's like. Mm, and sometimes it's hard to interpret that, you know, through the lens of that's an old film. Is that how? You know, a wistful person is shown. You know, it's not quite because the language isn't as from of that film era isn't as familiar to us as modern film language. It's kind of sometimes you have to kind of interpret through that filter, don't you? Can I chime in here with some fun facts about few people about the movie? The director Robert Wiede was very famous over here, especially after Caligari flopped because he, it wasn't a big hit. And he made some very interesting movies afterwards. Uh, for example, in 1924, even again with Conrad White, he shot a movie called Orlach's Hände. And if you can find the movie, watch it, because it's an early and interesting uh, variation on the Jekyll and Hyde scene. And with Conrad White in the titular role, you have someone who is really, really interesting. I think his performance as Hyde is much more interesting than Lon Chaney's one. Is this this one quite a famous image from it of wearing black, almost like um, aviator goggles and, Mm -hmm. and, and thick gloves? Is it that one? No, that's a, that's a remake. Oh, uh, okay. Right. He made, they made an American remake. Okay. You have to look out for the original silent movie. Right. And, an, and another great movie of Robert Wiener is Typhoon, where he uh, shot in the Philippines drama about a little a young girl 
falling in love with another tribesman, uh, with a man from another tribe. And in the end, you have a real catastrophic typhoon running over the islands. It's a great movie, a great action and a disaster movie. So Conrad Veidt, uh, I mentioned him a few times. It's one of my favorite actors, and not just because of uh, Caligari, but more of his uh, because of his later work, like the Jafar in the Thief of Baghdad from 1940. You know the English produced Thief of Baghdad with Sabu and uh, Conrad Veidt as a bad guy. Yeah, that's a great film. It's one of my favorite uh, sci-fi fantasy movies. And he played Major, Major Strasser in Casablanca, mm. which was his last role. Oh, I didn't know that. He was really yeah. good in that too. Yeah. And now about the sequel. Have you heard about the sequel to Caligari? Nope. 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 <laughs> most, most people know that there was a remake in the 60s. Right, which I hear is quite good. I never saw it. Never... No, never, never seen it, no. But the sequel is from 1989, and it's a direct sequel in which the granddaughter of Dr. Caligari is leading the CIA. No, 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 stop, stop. Okay. It's not the CIA. It's a Caligari insi- insane asylum. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and she has a very interesting way to heal her patients because she, she gives, them, gives them drugs, and uh, when they're drugged, they, she has sex with them. And that heals them. Uh, are there like actual doctors to do this? <laughs> I mean, if so, when? I don't know. Because <laughs> I'm feeling a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too, me too. Uh, yeah, I, I watched the trailer for this uh, earlier today, and it, it's proper dog shit. It really is. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really crazy. It's just a little bit, little bit David Lynch, a little bit 80s video movie style, and... I like it. It's a cheap production from a New York underground group. It's kind of an acquired taste. <laughs> yeah. Every so often, there comes a movie so sick, so twisted, so incredibly insane, the critics shout, Oscar calling, Oscar calling. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Unending torment. Meet Dr. Caligari. She's chic. She's hip. She's morally reprehensible. She's evil. She's a flat-out sadist. Sex Nazi. How do I make you feel? My feelings are like filthy prayers. I'm a juice dog. I'm a twitching skee-ball. And you won't let me shiver. Enter her asylum where the erotic meets the psychotic. Bon appetit. She's the granddaughter of the infamous Dr. Caligari. To her, your brain's an open house. You've got to learn to just say yes. The critics cheered when Dr. Caligari took the midnight movie circuit by storm. Perhaps I should prescribe a sedative for you. Spectrum News raved over this overnight cult classic. This movie screams art. And MTV went crazy over the Caligari Asylum. Fetching Madeleine Raynal plays the granddaughter of the evil German scientist, and she's got plans to bring him back in a big way. Variety called it a twisted, skewed, day-glow visual explosion reflecting a mad world. I got an EKG you can dance to. Everybody limbo. The LA Times stamped its approval, consistently outrageous and imaginative. I call it disgusting. The Toronto Festival of Festivals screamed pop expressionism with a 90s feel. You scratch my itch. 
Dr. Caligari scored three and a half stars from the Seattle Times, who praised it for a winning combination of nightmare and wit. Get a grip. The Arizona State Press gave it an A, and the Toronto Globe and Mail recommended it as sexy, surrealistic, and outrageous. I'm on a radiation vacation, soaking up the gammas. Dan Pearson of the New City described it perfectly as terminally hip. Funny thing about desire, if it's not crude, it's not pure. On college campuses, she's the new homecoming queen. She's got style, she's got class, she's got people talking everywhere. Excitement's the essence of life. When it's over, you're dead. She's racy, irreverent, and radical. Dr. Caligari, the twisted passions of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, the all-consuming hunger of eating Raul, and the outrageous excess of pink flamingos. Describe your life in three words or less. She's the surrealistic psychiatrist with the totally camp couch, Dr. Caligari. She's got the cure for midnight madness. Surprise! Are you sure this wasn't the porn parody? Like, this is an actual sequel? It's an actual sequel, but there is i don't know really uh, there are rumors about a porn parody but i couldn't find jesus it. are you serious yeah oh god <laughs> imagine this with, with all those nice decors and <laughs> something really strange <laughs> there's a porn parody of everything i think that's his own and that's another podcast <laughs> <laughs> special porn parody <laughs> Yeah, can I host that show? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Back to the movie. So do you have anything else you want to add? Anybody? Or shall we rate this? For me, it's one of the best horror movies ever made. And if I get the chance over here in Düsseldorf and the movie will be shown, and it will be shown more often than you think over here because our art house cinema has a... 35 millimeter copy i'm in i'm i see it regularly each year or each uh, two years it's one of my favorite movies it's a 10 out of 10 wow yeah i love it i love the style i love the acting i i love the feeling this movie gives me and i don't know if you have to cut it out with a little bit of wheat it's even better (laughs) (laughs) now that's done in (laughs) <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm so old nobody can get me anything yeah. <laughs> I yeah my, my feelings are, I, I didn't like it as, as, much, as much as you dear for sure it was definitely um, I found it quite disconcerting in places I really liked the, some of the scenes with Cesar c- sorry Cesar is that right? Oh, whatever. Cesare. Cesare. Uh, and it was, I kind of liked the expressionism when it wasn't just the backgrounds. When it was, uh, there was more three dimensional stuff going on, I really liked it. But when it was just the backgrounds, I did not. Uh, unfortunately, I think I prefer my German expressionism a bit softened. I really like its expression in, in the first three Frankenstein films, for example. But this felt a bit. Uh, the 2D stuff just didn't work for me quite as well. It's still got its moments. If I had a chance to see it on a big screen, I would see it like a shot for sure. If I saw it at an opportunity to see it with an orchestra, I'd be doubly so. You know, I'd definitely want to see it. But for me, this was a seven out of ten. I still, I still acknowledge it's an important and great film. I agree, I agree with that. But this is my personal view: is it's a seven out of ten. Well, earlier I mentioned that Gollum uh, or Golem was my favorite 
movie oh. that we're going to talk about. But just like this, uh, this movie has a twist ending. So does my review. This is a ten out of ten. This is ah. my this is one of my all time favorite horror movies. I love this. Uh-huh. I I love the set design. I love the music. It's got such a really cool story that takes twists and turns that you don't expect just to come to such a cool conclusion that is even cooler when you watch it a second time and a third time. This is easily one of my all-time favorite movies. I I just think it's so interesting just to sit back and look back into some of the deeper stuff mm-hmm. behind it. It's not just another kind of creature feature from the 20s. Not not just another uh, this movie wants to bang the main character's girl. There's actually some really cool stuff going on. I, I absolutely love this movie. I couldn't recommend it high enough. If, if you ever come to Germany, we can see it with the uh, Kino Orgel. This is Hell yes, that sounds awesome. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'll be in for that. Uh, come, come over. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I would have to be with uh, Mike and Deer, and I would give it a 10 as well. It's just so, for its influence alone, it's incredibly atmospheric, and I really appreciate the narrative. And like Mike said, that twist is just fantastic. And no matter how many times you see it or how many rip-offs or variations there are on that kind of theme, I just think it's brilliant, a really satisfying film, and you can read so much into it. So, yep, I'd be at a 10. And... Moving on to the final film that we're talking about today, Nosferatu. Sorry, before we go to Nosferatu, I just want to say, I know we've all been on the same page tonight, and it's been a good run, but I feel like we're, I'm going to disagree with all of you here. I'm just going to throw that out there. I was waiting yes. for it, Mike. I was waiting for yeah. it. Yeah. It, it, it's been oh. a good run. So oh, I got to take the left God. lane. I got to get off of the highway. I'm sorry, guys. Oh. <laughs> Moving on to the third film that we're talking about today, that is Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror. Nosferatu, eine Symphonie des Grauens. And this is an unauthorized adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And have you all read the novel? Uh, of course. Yeah, several times. Yeah, <laughs> you too. 
So I'm the lame one. Really? <laughs> <laughs> he, he's only baby. He's got plenty of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm only 20. But, yeah, just to say that names and other details were obviously changed so that the studio could basically try to get around this. So Vampire became Nosferatu and Count Dracula became Count Orlok. And Stoker's wife submitted a successful lawsuit, which resulted in nearly all of the copies of the film being destroyed. Only a few prints survived, and the film claimed cult status because of this. What do you reckon to... I mean, it was obviously fair, I think, that she could kind of, you know, file a lawsuit against him because it was so obviously a rip-off, but... I mean, you know, if um, all of the the films had been destroyed, we wouldn't have this amazing. Yeah, it's. It, uh, I understand she didn't actually become active until. I mean, basically, in Europe, Europe's a long way from America for this lady. The Stoker estate wasn't as rich as you'd think, uh, so she wasn't really going to be doing anything in Europe. But it was more that when the the Universal wanted the rights. For to Dracula that it started to become an issue where she started pressing these lawsuits and she had to take it to several courts I think for different, I don't know if it was different states or different countries, but she always won the case because it was obviously was a, uh, a copyright infringement mm. but one of the reasons this survived is it, it, she was pretty much the only one who wanted it destroyed, everyone else I think this film was pretty high regarded back then and people wanted it to stay around so therefore prints weren't destroyed, that's why kind of we still got it because it was, it was good is my opinion, anyway. I, th- I think that's how it actually ter- it was as well. It's not just my opinion. Yeah, because it was already kind of internationally distributed. I think that's how it kind of got around the kind of call for all of the copies to be destroyed. But I believe as well that the film studio that produced the film, it was the only film that came out of that studio because they had to pay the um, legal fees. Mm-hmm. And it actually went bankrupt in, I think, 1923. Yes. That's quite, that's quite sad. That's a shame because I believe it was actually set up as well to specifically focus on supernatural or occult films. Right, right. Prana. Yeah. It was. Yes, yes, and thank there's, you. There's, there's a great story behind this. Do you want it to hear now or later? No, now. No, yeah. Now, great. Okay, you know, uh, Friedrich Wilhelm Murnau, the director, was a member of the November Group, which was a group of left-wing artists in Berlin. And there he met the painter Albin Grau, who was responsible for the whole artwork of Nosferatu. And I think you have already seen some of uh, his pictures, his Nosferatu sketches. Uh, They are almost a storyboard of the final movie very great artist with this uh, charcoal style and very expressionistic, I think. And Grau uh, also was a member of an occult group in which Alistair Crowley also was members. You know Alistair Crowley? Uh, yeah, yes. the uh, he was a self-publicist. He claimed he was a black magician and, yeah, and he may yeah. have been, I don't know, but he was quite a big self-publicist as well. He was a, a, a fan of the Dark Lord, mm. <laughs> I would say. And Grau founded Prana Films, the co- distribution company for uh, Nosferatu. And also this name was based on occult writings and writings about occult philosophy. 
So if you look closely, you will find a lot of occult influences in Nosferatu if you know where to look. Especially, let's say, the letter Hatter's boss receives at the beginning. If you look at the letter, there are no um, normal type, no normal typo. It's sort of symbols. Uh, yeah, they're occult symbols, aren't they? It's yeah, full of it. Yeah, yeah. And, and both sides. Some some pictures in it, and and also if you uh, watch the, the office of the Doctor Van Helsing type. There are some pictures on the back walls. If you look closely, those are really occult symbols. You you never know it if you don't look for them. I I noticed that. I will watch for that next time I watch this film, <laughs> which I might actually watch again this weekend because I I enjoy watching it so much. And as you mentioned, Prana Production or Prana Films had planned to release a movie each month, and all of those movies were dark fantasy horror movies with titles like Satanos or the dark the dark one or something like this and they went bankrupt after Stoker's wife really uh, filed the lawsuit and none of the other movies were ever released or made sadly uh, that's okay that sounds different from what I'd read I, I got the impression she didn't start pressing lawsuits until sort of towards the end of the 20s but obviously no, 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 it must no, have been no. way earlier than that then no, no, okay for, don't forget, Doko was an Englishman. Yeah. He, he wasn't so far away. You're quite right. You're quite right. Especially it, after yes. the World War, mm. when the, the connections between Britain and Germany got closer again. Mm. So the British got the movie really, really fast after it was a bump success over here. Mm. So that's the backstory about the occult influences of Nosferatu. But... Uh, when you watch it again, look out for those things. You will find I, I will, anything. yeah. Hmm? Okay. Yeah, I just think they add a, a great layer to it, just, you know, a very unsettling layer of that um, mm-hmm. detail, like you say in the letter, it isn't just, you know, typeface, it isn't writing, it's that kind of, you know, occult symbols and, you know, coded language or whatever. So yeah. I, I, for me, that really works with the tones of the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that, that letter actually helps you understand not knock is like an odd character from the beginning mm-hmm. really odd but it sounds like that letter kind of is shows you that he's he's got kind of a secret communication going on with uh orlock right yep. from the beginning before the film starts kind of thing so it, it makes more it makes more sense because of the way knock acts than just a normal letter would you mm-hmm. know knock's behavior would be a bit would be harder to, to interpret if it was just a normal letter especially his his, his, uh, his views <laughs> when, he, when he looks up to Hutter and and a little blood <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. great. so great to see <laughs> he really is, he reminds me of Caligari a little bit as well yeah. mm. yes. <laughs> but I think the actor in the Brams uh, in, sorry, Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula who plays Renfield very much takes from that I think yeah who was it was it Tom Waits it was it, it was Tom Waits yeah. it was Tom Waits yeah mm. Eat, eating the bugs mmm yum <laughs> <laughs> yeah. which I must admit I do enjoy that film no but I mean Dwight Fry in um, yeah. in the Universal Dracula is my favourite Renfield by far Ren- Renfield oh. type character by far okay so let me say it 
Klaus Kinski as Renfield in the Jess Franco version. Yeah, maybe, but uh, it's just something about Dwight Fry. I just think he's great. <laughs> anyway, sorry, that's a rather <laughs> It's a Renfield discussion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that for our vampire yeah. um, special. So, to get into the plot of Nosferatu, like we said, it's very, very similar to Bram Stoker's plot for Dracula. And we start out in the town of Weisburg, which I believe is fictional, Wis- isn't it? Wisborg, I would Wis- say, but Wisburg. the problem is this town doesn't exist. Yeah, it's fictional, it's, isn't it? It's a mix from Lübeck and Wismar. Estate agent Mr. Nock, as we've mentioned, is pleased to receive a commission from Count Orlock to find a house for him. He's very pleased. He's very kind of sinister, isn't he? <laughs> He's <laughs> a creepy dude. Yeah. He really is. <laughs> and then he dispatches his young assistant, Hutter, obviously Harker, to Orlock's castle in the far-off Carpathians after deciding that the Count should have the vacant house just opposite Hutter's own. And Sounds like it. I just want to go back. when he, We meet Ellen, don't we? His wife, Ellen. Or mm. she's, Same with the cat. She's, she's a proper goth. <laughs> emo type <laughs> it's a sh- you know you know it gives us some flowers why did you kill the flowers it's kind of i just could imagine it like kind of uh when the i don't know kind of vibe straight away that was such a bizarre exchange that was so weird <laughs> she's an odd character ellen she's interesting but she's she's very odd yes i mean We'll get to the ending, obviously, but I find her interesting as well in the portrayal, kind of like Miriam from The Golem. So Hutter has set off to meet the Count, and he encounters on the way some local people in the area who basically warn him about the the Count, and they kind of provide exposition as to the nightmarish you know supernatural elements of the story and how nobody wants to go out after dark that's when the you know the monsters and the ghouls are at their full power and i find these scenes to be quite effective mm-hmm. um in kind of providing that you know foreboding and, and warning before we get that all important you know first image of count Arlock. Um, did you agree with that I, I kind of like it created that kind of trope, didn't it? In a whole set of films after it, I did kind mm. of, uh, yeah, I thought that was okay. The 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 only thing that always makes me laugh about this is the bed he sleeps in looks like uh, it's an oversized <laughs> set for a child. It's yeah. kind of a really weird bed mm. arrangement, but but, but but the book he finds uh, close to the bed. Oh yeah, the be- a book as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, another occult influence. Yes, uh, he finds the, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. The drawings in the book are very strange. And hmm, eh. yeah, no, 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 definitely. And again, like I said, that adds to this kind of layer of um, unease and tension. Mm. And despite these warnings, he meets the count. And I personally, it's one of the most iconic <sighs> images. Yeah, in in you know horror cinema, to to see him when he gets to. To the castle. The drive up to the castle in the um, black or dark carriage is also great. Yeah. Because this is the first point we see Nosferatu. Yeah, he's got he's rocking a cool hat. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I knew that was coming. Oh, come on. (laughs) <laughs> it's 
not it's not as good as Dennis Hopper's, but it's pretty. It's well, pretty nothing good. is. That's not good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I did find the site slightly speeded up. Yeah, you know, yeah. coach riding and a bit, not, a bit not, not goofy, only, a not, bit not goofy. On, not only this, when the coach rides and you see it in black and the forest looks very strange, that's because they coated the whole coach in white linen and the shot is negative. Yeah, that worked. That was a good shot. Um, the shot strange. just before that where the coach was slightly speeded up, I found a bit goofy. Yeah, okay. I, I, <laughs> it just looks a bit, yeah... But the problem is we're used to silent comedies being speeded up slightly, mm-hmm. aren't we? So it, it unfortunately has that effect that when we see some other things speeded up slightly, it just looks like an old silent comedy on. film. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like Keystone Cops. No, definitely. And then what do you think of Count Orlok, you know, in terms of other vampires on film, you know, do you think he's scary or...? He's, he's the scariest uh, vampire monster I've ever saw, and I don't think anyone will come close to him again. Um, I agree. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think this is a, a, a supremely iconic sort of design. It's got to be the first iconic monster of cinema, mm-hmm. really. Yeah. And it still works. It's still quite frightening. There's certain scenes in in the castle that are just take your breath away still yeah yeah that's why i love it in some ways it's whenever he's moving in, mm. and he's framed in some way there's a lot of framing of him isn't there mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? where he is you know he's door, coming through doorways or, yeah. or uh is in a shadow that frames in or often it's his shadow that is framed as well uh it's kind of very cool but the design yeah. is great Yes, and you know, shadows really come into play towards the end of the film for sure. And that's something I think that Coppola's version played with, but really didn't. You know, the simplicity of of this film and how it uses light and that chiaroscuro effect to, you know, like I said, maximum effect. I think is fantastic. Um, but I agree that he's the scariest monster set to screen. The only thing that comes close, I think, is probably Lon Chaney in London After Midnight. For or, me. Yeah, that's or, pretty cool. Or Klaus Kinski in Nosferatu. The Herzog version. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's... Well, yeah, um, I'll talk about that later because I'm a yeah. big fan. But, yes, yeah, so I we all agree he's terrifying. And though, some of those scenes, like you say, in the castle then, when mm. Hutter is alone with him, the way he moves, he's got a very animal-like... Yeah you know movement it's oh, it just it really goes through me and watching that in the darkness you know you got all the lights down i just it's terrifying how close he gets he's in very close proximity to him mm. and like i say it's very simple when you compare it to other i think adaptations it's just really effective i think yeah he, he's a creature he's a real he creature is. He, he's he, not sparkling he's not good looking sparkling oh god <laughs> Most Let's likely. not mention that. <laughs> the way, I mean, the way he moves is, uh, you know, he kind of glides and yeah. his hands are just not moving by his sides and there's those massive claw-like hands. Yeah. I think the intention, well, I think we, we can all see what the intention is. It's, it's basically a rat made into a man. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. kind of uh, intention, I think. Yeah, of the the, the uh, connections to rats come later. In yeah. The movie. yeah. Oh, that's true, yeah. And. Um, Count is very eager to buy the proposed property, mm. even more so when he sees a photo of Ellen. 
And Hutter obviously realizes that he's dealing with an evil force, and he's yeah, locked yeah, away. Yeah, he's not. He's not blind. <laughs> no, he's locked away from his trouble. <laughs> I'm sorry. You'd just be gone, wouldn't you? You would not be hanging around. Sorry. <laughs> and Orlok actually makes his way by ship to Visborg. Before we get to the ship stuff, I just wanted to say something about you know the scene where Hutter looks out the window and he sees mm. Orlok loading the coffins Great. by himself uh, and then sort of the lid going on its own and then the horses. Apparently they intended to have locals loading him in, but apparently the locals turned up, they saw the coffins, mm. they saw Max Shrek in his outfit and they well, I'm not sure if they just ran away, but they basically refused to take part and left. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't planned that way, but uh, <laughs> that's it how it turned us, out. Gave, gave us a great stop-motion scene. Yeah. And and the uh, scene with the river, where they're transporting the coffins over the river. Mm. They had a lot of problems to get those two guys to use the... What is it? Uh, um, right. Mm, Oh. Yeah. Float. Yeah. <laughs> had a lot of problems to get them uh, to go on. Like the flat ferry. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It wasn't easy to produce a movie. <laughs> no, no, not at all. You know, getting onto the the scene on the ship. Again, I think it's kind of three iconic scenes in this, yeah. which is, you know, when we're introduced to him, the ship scene, and then the end of the film. And I just love the kind of silhouette and his the way he's framed on the ship against mm. you know the, the black and the white tones are so stark for me this is just top-notch kind of especially silent cinema but mike's been very quiet i'm interested <laughs> to hear what mike thinks about this well i'm i really love i love max shrek as as count orlock mm. i think every single scene with him is just super creepy and awesome mm. like the the scene where he uh, arrives in Weisberg and he just kind of he's he's on this boat and he just kind of slowly glides across the water he's just standing still on this little ship and it's just kind of him pulling up to his new home I love I love that shot and there's plenty of shots like that when Hutter looks down the hallway and sees him just staring at the door I think stuff like that is terrifying my big problem with the film is that I just don't think especially the second half of the movie more so than anything it's just really unfocused and it's really, really, really fucking boring to be just straightforward with it. Because I, I hate watching a classic silent film. And nobody wants to be the guy to, to say that it's boring. I just found uh, this really no. boring. No, I agree with you, I think there's definitely long sections in the second half where it's uneven. It's not very engaging. It's boring. All, all the time Max Shrek is on it. It's not. It's not. It's great. And there are sections without Max Shrek where it's great as well, but there are sections where it's just kind of goofy or, well, worse than that, it's boring. You know, the whole... Goofy, definitely. Knock being chased around is like, uh, mm. you know, what's the point of that? So uh, you're not alone in thinking that. However, I just think the, the sort of great elements out far out, I can, I can easily overlook them. I get that. that. that, that that's... Uh, but I, I agree. There are every time I watch it, uh, they're less and less important to me. Let, let's put it that way. I just think the uh, I think it would have been easier for me to kind of get through that because the music helps a lot. The music really carries this mm. film for me. It really helps me get through some of the stuff. Yeah, some of the really I think boring stuff. In the past, I've watched much shorter versions where all of that goofy stuff just isn't 
that there isn't that much of it and I, when well, i finally saw a longer version the version i've got now which is i think about 95 minutes that's uh, right it's about 20 minutes longer than ones i'm used to and it's kind of wow there's a lot of this and it catches you off guard but I, like i say i just shrek is so good you know and and and, and the direction and and some of the sort of decisions about what they should there are bits without Shrek that are really good too the shots of the ship are really good mm-hmm. just you know the ship moving through the water the rats coming out is kind of quite striking the pool bearers in the town I thought it was a very striking scene there's all sorts of scenes I, th- I really like but you know when Noki's running around it's it feels like they're trying to do I don't know Charlie Chaplin or something it's a very odd kind of thing but yeah it just doesn't feel you're natural. not alone there let's, let's yeah. put it that way Plus, I just think the actors in, the, in this is, are terrible. I, like, the, the main guy who plays Hutter, it, it seems like there would just be these random times where they would be having conversations. And plus, I think the writing in this is really bad, too. I just think it's really badly written. And you got these actors performing this all out. And it, there was a lot of uh, spots with him just randomly laughing for no reason. Like, the whole scene where she's talking about the flowers, or you killed the flowers, and he just gives this weird random laugh, and it's just so over-the-top. It's just so goofy done, and I want to be able to kind of give that leeway and say, oh, they had to do that back then because of they can't act with words and stuff, mm. but in Caligari and Golem, they I thought they did that really well, so I can't give it that leeway here. There's that scene where we discussed earlier where he finds the book next to the bed and just looks at it and then does his weird over-the-top laugh, goes to bed, wakes up again, looks at the book, laughs at it again, and then just throws it at the ground. And it's just this really goofy scene that just had me sitting there going, what is this even... Like, can we pull it back just a little bit? Can we can we get to, where, like, some of the important story? Especially in the second half. Well, where- probably, probably they tried to convince you that Pata is a character who stands with both feet on the ground. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's the scully to everybody else who is the molder. <laughs> um, I just thought he was insane. Um, <laughs> I, have to, I, I, have to, I have to disagree that this, the act in this film was any, any more extreme than some of the other acts. I think all three films had this kind of acting style, so I accept it for what it is. In fact, I thought Nosferatu's acting was might might have been the most subdued in places mm-hmm. uh, i'll give you an example in in the golem the scene where the golem first appears in court everyone's re- reaction was completely ridiculous mm-hmm. they it was like godzilla they, yeah it was like <laughs> it was like the director was saying now act shock but the most shock you can possibly be to everyone on the scene so they all had like an O mouth and like, mm. you know, and hands it, in front of the and mouth. That, that, that I remember laughing at that scene because it was so ridiculous. But you know, I accept that it's a thing of its time. Whereas, anyway, I'm just giving an example of in in the other films, it, there was similar extremes in acting. So I, I don't think this particularly was bad compared to the others. I think that style doesn't suit us. You know, we're used to natural acting now. So I, I didn't particularly. Maybe I've just got used to it, though. I'm not. I'm not sure. What, what do What do you think, Becky? I personally, I'm such a fan of the book that I can completely see your points and how some of the bits of the films can be cut out, and you'll have a much more 
kind of cohesive streamlined version if you do chop them out but they don't bother me that much because I'm such a fan of it and I just kind of take it on board with the kind of you know the strange dreamlike quality of the film anyway mm. and in terms of the acting I would also think that it is actually a little bit more subdued than in others maybe it but, was Hutter in particular was mm. it Hutter in particular Mike or was it all of the acting I mean Knock was pretty weird but um as well but you it know was, I think that was his character wasn't it yeah it was Hutter in particular but I thought everybody honestly I thought everybody besides Max Shrek I thought everybody was just really over the top to a point where I was kind of annoyed with it I was gonna say Ellen wasn't but I kind of she was over the top in terms of being like mopey uh, <laughs> kind of washed uh, she was almost a washed out character that's not to say she wasn't an important and acti- active character in this but mm. her acting style was kind of well, yeah I, I, I kind of see what you're saying yeah so in regards to the plot as Arlok travels nearer to Wisborg a devastating plague descends in his wake and the people there begin to sense the coming of evil with you know omens and just a general atmosphere to the place and I thought that was quite nicely captured how it's kind of centered around the town I've got I've got a few things to say. I was listening to on one of the watches. I listened to some of the sort of commentary on this, and one of the commentators was noting the this kind of linking of vampirism with plague, which is quite unusual, especially in early. You know, it wasn't part of the book particularly. I mean, the, the fact that um, Dracula can influence rats, rats kind of come into it, the book somewhat, but not plague. And what he was say, saying was, you know, this was all just after the First World War, so there was a lot of walking wounded that in old, old, other wars just wouldn't have come home, they'd have died, you know. But modern medicine made it a lot of these men that were either damaged physically or, or psychologically come home. So, in effect, it was kind of like the walking dead had returned. Additionally, in in 1919, there was a world plague uh, called the Spanish flu, which was absolutely devastating. It it wiped out, I think, five percent of the world's population, and it was quite significant in Europe. And it was found that it specifically seemed to mostly, not mostly, but a, a significant portion of the population that were affected by it, but were young women and and young women, pregnant women in particular. So, you know, they, the world had just suffered from the World War. So certainly Europe had just suffered from the World War. And then that was followed by a massive plague that was, you know, taking out heavy, healthy people. And then comes Nosferatu uh, three years after that, where plague and vampirism are closely associated. So that, you know, you can imagine if you've just lived three years ago, you live through this plague of that proportion. And then there's a film where, you know, plague is a central feature you can kind of see why the filmmakers put it in. Mm. And that wasn't something I was aware of. So it, I, that's, I think, why Plague... Plague was in the zeitgeist for sure when this was made. So Sad- I think that's why it came in here. Sadly, they couldn't uh, realise the scenes with the rats like they planned it. They planned to use uh, about 1,000 rats, and they only got 10. <laughs> so you, you you can't uh, conceive the viewer that uh, hordes of rats are running through the city with just 10 rats that's a problem here. yeah I, I think he did a pretty good job actually <laughs> yeah. uh, you know with 10 rats yeah <laughs> <laughs> so Hutter eventually escapes Olox castle 
determined to return home, but because he's so exhausted and ill, he finds himself in hospital. But he eventually arrives home to find that Orlok has already arrived and a number of the townsfolk are dead. And again, this relates back to um, what Mark was saying in regards to the plague. And as a kind of deviation from the novel, Orlok doesn't create other vampires, um, but he actually kills his victims, which again ties into the plague. So that, that's quite interesting in terms of all of what Mark was just saying. And... Ellen, reunited with her husband against his wishes, reads from the book that he found, claiming that the way to defeat a vampire is for a woman who is pure in heart to distract the vampire with her beauty all through the night. Mm. And she then takes it upon herself to open her window to invite him in, because obviously he's literally across the street. And he, um, there's that great framing shot of him looking yeah. through the window, isn't there? Wow, that was an awesome shot. Imagine yeah. seeing that if you looked out your window, seeing that across the road. Uh, I just want to say that building that was he was that he was supposed to ball, you know, across across the way. That's a real building. It wasn't a set, mm-hmm. and apparently it still stands and it still looks just like that. Absolutely, that's crazy. Yeah, imagine. <laughs> I want to go see it. I want to I buy it. it. <laughs> I saw it. I saw it. I saw. Uh, wow. Uh, most of the places uh, shot in uh, Lübeck. There's a scene when uh, Nosferatu carries this uh, coffin through the city. All these places are in Lübeck. Wow. All in an area for about 200 uh, 200 meters. Very strange. Wow. Hmm? Yeah, fair play to him. He does a lot of carrying of his own coffin around in in this film. Sometimes Um, you just can't get help. (laughs) (laughs) So, like I say, opening her window to invite him in, Orlok comes forward and in sacrificing herself in this way, uh, the Count stays with her all night and the sunlight starts to uh, filter into the room and we have a wonderful kind of final scene in which he is kind of dissipated by the sunlight. So it's beauty that not only tamed but killed the beast in this regard but the whole kind of last segment and i know that you were saying that the the end of the film for you mike and mark i think in some respects is quite slow and a bit incohesive but did you think that those last few shots or scenes worked well i just thought it was kind of a lame wrap up i just i I thought we were kind of I thought we still had more to go and then when it kind of ended like that I was just like oh is is that it that's all okay <laughs> didn't have did a big ex- lasting effect <laughs> what did you expect a transformation <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I guess I was just hoping for a little bit more something to kind of turn me over and it was just oh nothing I personally really liked it but I was I knew it was going to happen I before I ever saw this film I'd already read all about it so I knew knew exactly what to expect so I you know had zero expectation and I mean I saw this years ago I, I did like the fact Ellen is so active but I mean forget about the Van Helsing guy he was rubbish mm-hmm. as a vampire killer but it was Ellen Ellen mm-hmm. was the one who sort of acted against the vampire even though she seemed mopey and passive she's the one that actually is the active destroyer of evil in, in this and I thought it was a, a cool idea it, it was interesting that the first Dracula film is so divergent from the sort of traditional state of vampire kind of idea and 
And he invented the Sunlight Kills Vampire thing. Yes. Really? Now, I, yeah. yeah. It, it, um, it's funny because if you watch the film, it's like sometimes you see him walking around and it's like, it looks like daylight. But I think back then, uh, and in some of the ones, it's on some of the scenes, but not all of them, I think it was taken that if the film tints blue, it means mm-hmm. it's night time. So the, right. it, that was the language of film at that time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it, it was cool. It was cool that he disappeared in a puff and, uh, and uh, yeah, and it just for anybody who hasn't like read the book in in the original novel, I think sunlight it kind of decreases his power slightly, yeah. but it doesn't it doesn't kill him. Yeah, he walks around in in the day and he appears yeah. more like a normal man. Yes, yeah, but I also absolutely loved the ending. I thought it kind of ramped up the pace a little bit, but also it kept that level of tension and suspense. And the shadow, um, use of shadows here, I thought was really, really effective. Not only the kind of iconic shadow as he walks up the stairs, but also he enters the room and the shadow of his hand, I'm guessing he's like affecting her heart. Mm-hmm. I thought that was a really clever and simple use of lighting. And we also see not... Co- I don't know if he's released or just realised, you know, he says the master is dead. Yeah, uh, he seems to change slightly, doesn't he? Yeah, he seems uh, way less hyperactive. <laughs> yeah. uh, he kind of calms down a bit. Yeah. One of the problems I did have is is the whole knock, chasing knock around stuff. It was kind of goofy to me. And I kind of, I prefer the shorter version that cuts that out, frankly. But having said that, I don't think I'd go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if so, I have the perfect version for you. It's the Castle Films versions uh, from 1978, the Super 8mm version. It's 10 minutes and includes all <laughs> Nosferatu experiences. Just <laughs> Nos- yeah, perfect. Just I, mean, Nosferatu. I didn't get that version. <laughs> yeah, that's one for Mike. <laughs> and just touching on music that was mentioned before, uh, most of the original score by... Hans Ertmann. ...has been lost, but what remains is only a reconstitution mm. as it was played originally. And this has led many composers and musicians to improvise their own soundtrack. And I didn't realise, but James Bernard mm. actually wrote a score for Reissue, who obviously is a composer for Hammer. many soundtracks from Hammer Horror films, yeah, particularly the 50s and 60s. So I thought that was an interesting... Um, link. Yeah, Bernard's are quite an interesting. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine what it'd be like because Bernard is quite sometimes quite a literal composer. Like he's Dracula, he based it on the, it sounded like Dracula. <laughs> and I just <laughs> I can imagine the, his soundtrack for Nosferatu is going to be Nosferatu. Or like that. <laughs> and I, can, I don't know, I haven't heard it, but I just can imagine that. <laughs> I bet it is as well. Um, and following on from that just very briefly i wanted to ask what your opinions were on the influences on later vampire horror particularly films has everybody seen todd browning's dracula from 1931 yeah, no of course uh yeah i've seen yeah. it yeah certainly the early i think the f- first act yeah, though I'm pretty sure Universal so. would deny it. Mm. I think the first act, the first act, which is the best by far, the best bit of the film, yeah, uh, is very Nosferatu like. Absolutely, I would say so. The and I was very the first appearance of of Bela on the steps. It's it's Nosferatu. It's not Dracula. 
Uh, I was just going to talk about some of the other ones, but we'll finish on Dracula first. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I was just going to say that um, I was quite lucky. I remember in college, and this kind of instilled my kind of passion for kind of writing about film particularly, but our tutor showed us the opening scenes from several different adaptations of basically Dracula and so it's always kind of stayed with me kind of seeing the arrival of Ahaka and the introduction of uh, Dracula and it's really interesting when you watch them all so closely together yeah I mean they're all very similar the only one that I think is flat is actually Christopher Lee's first one it's kind of because it, mm-hmm. it's very uh, it's very flat in that he just seems like a normal man whereas if you compare it to these introductions they, they're like whoa Yeah, I would completely agree with that. But then we have Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire, The Dream of Alan Gray. Vampire, Der Traum von Alan Gray. 1932, and that was based on elements from Lifano's collection of supernatural stories in A Glass Darkly. I'll tell you, it was definitely influenced by Nosferatu. The the vampire, not so much, but the actual shooting and, and some of the scene setting definitely feels like Nosferatu. Yeah. And then we have uh, Werner Herzog's tribute film, Nosferatu the Vampire. Which you love. I love, yes. I, yeah, I really, I'm, really... In- Sorry. I'm, I'm not so much. I'm, I, I'm up and down. I, sometimes I really enjoy it, and sometimes I think it's a bit too goofy for its own good. Yeah. There's sections in it that literally remind me of Monty Python. Back, back then, back then <laughs> when, I, when I saw it for the first time in the cinema... The scene when Nosferatu sucks on Alan, and you hear this sucking sound. (laughs) (laughs) The whole cinema bursts out in laughter. No one could take this film serious. I mean, there's there's some great bits in it. There are definitely some great bits in it. But um, I'm thinking right near the end when the tension's all big, they have a really ridiculous scene where this guy says, go and get the magistrate. He says, but he's dead. Yeah. And that that's the bit that reminds me of Monty Python. Yeah, he says, but he's dead. They keep yeah. saying, go get something. He says, but he's dead. It's an ex He's run away. <laughs> it's an ex-vampire. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. That bit's ridiculous. But uh, Klaus Kids is a great um, Nosferatu. It's, it's yes. Herzog. It's Herzog. Oh, Herzog is a great director too. Yeah. But there was just some scenes that I felt were poorly judged. Yeah. And the rats I, I, don't look right either. No, and this a bit I think with animal cruelty. So, oh. <laughs> yeah, that I've heard about that. Mm. Yeah, but some of the scenes, well, that scene where the boat comes into the town, is spectacular. Yeah, with the uh, cat yes. bound to the, the uh, steering yeah. wheel, and so yeah, and and Kinski is a great Nosferatu. Yeah, he, he, he seems like a thoroughly fed up with like it, it works. It works. Yeah. Has anybody yeah. seen uh, Nosferatu in Venice? The sequel? Mm, I, you know what? I think I have, but I just can't remember anything about it. He's got <laughs> hair in it, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's easier to forget it as yeah. seen it again. It's, 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 meant, it's, it's not really Nosferatu. It's a vampire. It's just yeah. a vampire. It's and more the, Dracula than Nosferatu. He's got hair, you know. It's he, so bad. It's yeah. so bad. Yeah. <laughs> I have seen it, yeah. But just coming back to um, Herzog's Nosferatu, I'd, like you say, it's, it's got 
goofy bits, but, but I just think it, it's such a strange kind of mix, but I just find it works. It just keeps me engaged all the way through, and I enjoy anything by Herzog anyway. It's got a, um, it's got a killer last shot as well, a great last shot. Yes, yeah. I think definitely, obviously, it's a huge influence on, on that. And then we have the meta film, um, Shadow of a Vampire, mm-hmm. from 2000, by E. Elias Murhage, I think. Murhage's. This stars Willem Dafoe and John Malkovich, and it's an imaginary account of the making of Nosferatu, in which the film crew begin to have disturbing suspicions about their lead actor. Yep. Yeah, it's kind of fun. I haven't seen it in a while, but it's kind of fun. Isn't Eddie Izzard in it? Or am I dreaming? No, he is. You're right. Uh, and, it's kind and, of fun. And Udo Kier. Oh, yes. Yes. Don't forget Udo. No, don't <laughs> I love um, Udo. Um, yeah, I kind of enjoyed it, but I really can't remember much about it. It's just based on this myth that Max Shrek was actually a vampire. You know, it was a myth way before this just, film. Yeah, yeah and it's, it's a great premise for a film. So I thought that was quite interesting. And then obviously we have... Sorry? And the foe is a great vampire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he brings a, lev- a level of sinister he's very malevolent in it yeah Yeah, he really does and then obviously we have Bram Stoker's Dracula Coppola's version and again I know it gets a lot of hate but I just have a fun time with it I think Gary Oldman just goes all out in it I mean there's a couple of other films where we have a Nosferatu I mean Salem's Lot is one we have a Nosferatu vampire in that don't we of course. What we course. do in the shadows. Oh, yeah, what we do in the shadows is the. I think that's it. I think there's not that many. I think it's those are it in terms of Nosferatu like vampires. And the Nosferatu like vampire in what we do in the shadows is is great. And what I can't remember his name. He's got he's got a name like Pete or something, isn't it? Yeah, something, <laughs> something funny. Yeah, yeah something, something like funny. that. Yeah. <laughs> great. It's a great comedy as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, we've we, 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 we got to do it. We've got to yeah, do yeah. that sometime. Definitely. Definitely. So, let's come to ratings. Mark, what did you think? Um, I think, right, this score is definitely not a reflection of the consistency of the movie. It's not consistent. There are definitely long sections where, uh, particularly when Shrek's not around, well, none of the stuff where Shrek is in it is, is poor. All the stuff with Shrek is great, but there are long sections when he's not around that are uneven, they're not very engaging, they're a little boring. The trekking across the countryside by Hatter goes on and on sometimes. Mm. Uh, the, the chase with Knock is ridiculous. Um, however, uh, there are anything with Shrek in and quite a few shots where he's not in. They just draw your eye and they stay on your mind, you know, days and weeks after you've seen the film that you know they just come back to you now and again and in a way that very few movies can do really just on imagery certainly from this era it's a i i I think it's a masterpiece despite these inconsistencies and i'm going to give it 10 yeah here too (laughs) it's it's also one of my favorite movies of all time and it's in my top 10 so it is a 10 and Mike? Um, yeah. Well, I'm going to start out by saying the things that th- I do definitely, I, I definitely give it points on a lot of accounts. Uh, I think the music, I think it's one of the best mm. musical scores I've ever heard. I think the music in this is amazing. Um, on the copy I have, there's a, an overture before the movie starts, mm-hmm. and I totally loved sitting there and listening to the music. I thought it was amazing. I think Max Shrek is so good 
as as Nosferatu. He's so creepy, and just the way he moves and dresses and everything is just awesome and creepy. And as a movie that's what, 94 years old, it's aged pretty well on on certain accounts. I think it still manages to be creepy at times. We mentioned where he's down at the end of the hall staring at the door when he's across the way staring out the window. Just He's just got this creepy gaze to him. So anytime he's on is amazing. But overall, I found that... Oh, and I forgot to mention... As you guys said before, there's a lot of great shots with you know the boats and the the castles. Unlike um, a movie like Caligari, there isn't a whole lot of you know the paper mache sets or anything. There's a lot of like big physical actual buildings and a lot of the location shoots. Exactly, and it's pretty effective. It's really cool actually, and that helps with a lot of the visual elements. But overall, I thought it was boring. I thought a lot of the acting was bad. I thought a lot of the writing was bad. I thought that it, it lost focus more times than it didn't, and it's just kind of wrapped up in a way that has left me kind of hanging there. I don't know. This is a 6 out of 10 for me. So I would also be at a 10. I think that the film is very much the definitive kind of visual adaptation of Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that just kind of was the interpretation that all of the other film scenes have just taken from and everything, the atmosphere, out of the three films that we've talked about, even though they're all classed as horror, this is the only one that I would find to be actually effective in regards to being scared while watching. And that's largely due to Shrek's performance. And like we said, he's, you know, a seminal, iconic creature in regards to horror cinema so everything about the atmosphere the the music the acting and even though the longer cut does have a few bits that aren't necessarily great i i can look past all of that so it's a 10 for me about max shrek uh, you know what the name shrek means terror terror you know Exactly, exactly. Really? Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's also one other sort of minor influence, as in Max Shrek is a character in Batman Returns. Uh, yeah, yeah. Tim Burton uses really? it. Yeah. yeah. Christopher, uh, Christopher Walken's character, yeah. Mm-hmm. Christopher Walken. Oh, I thought you were saying Max Shrek was in it. Was <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> no, Christopher Walken's character he was looks Max good Shrek. for his age. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Uh, and it makes you think Christopher Walken could be a pretty good Nosferatu. Mm. Oh, I just remember there is one other Nosferatu. Um, character in a film which is Dracula Untold has a Nosferatu character played by Charles Dance the only good thing in the film in fact oh that's right yeah I've forgotten <laughs> which that is one, not actually. that's a backhanded compliment yeah but he is he is really good he is really good <laughs> but he's not in the film that much unfortunately all right well we have some feedback here some awesome feedback as usual we got one here by I hope I'm saying this his last name correctly Dan Pollitt Pollitt Yep. Do you guys know how to say that? Is I that would say Pollitt? Yeah, that's yeah. correct. Yeah. And he says, Hey guys, read you were discussing Nosferatu this week. Remember really enjoying while studying the German expression while at uni. So prepare to be bored by an ex film student trying to piece together knowledge from a third rate university education. Nosferatu is one of those films I more appreciated as a piece of cinema history and what's done for the genre than sitting down to have an engaging film experience. This might be an example of bias, but it's very rare a silent film will really hold my attention outside of the looking at it in a historical context. 
if it's a choice between the Phantom Carriage and Friday the Thirteenth Part Seven, uh, it's Jason versus Carrie every time. Oh my god! <laughs> Don't know if you, <laughs> which is a badass movie, by the way. <laughs> Very badass bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know if you'll cover this in, in the episode, but making of Nosferatu was a pretty interesting affair. For the fictionalized telling, have a look at Shadow of the Vampire from 2000. Great performance by Willem Dafoe and Max Schreck and John Malkovich as... Oh, I'm sorry. Willem Dafoe yeah. as Max Schreck and John Malkovich as F.W. Murnau. It isn't a great movie, but if you love films about films, then it's worth a watch. Especially if you're a fan of Ed Wood from 1994. But the most interesting about Nosferatu is the lawsuit from the Stoker estate around that time. I'll include a link to the full story, but it breaks down as the book Dracula by Bram Stoker was public domain in the U.S. just after it was published. And is similar to how Romeo Romero was screwed over on Night of the Living Dead. So German producers asked Murnau with making the film and upon completion, the whole copyright battle ensued. The courts ruled that every copy was to be destroyed, and they all were, except for one. Somehow, a single print had made uh, had made it to the U.S. and was exempt from the destruction. And the single print is what every copy of Nosferatu is made from today. This film was almost a London after midnight situation. No, most people reading this will already know about it, but just in case. Check out Shadow of the Vampire, the drama, the dramatized making of Nosferatu. Uh, as he said before, great Defoe performance and general watch for anyone who loves movies about movies. Also, as a bizarre side note, Murnau's skull was stolen from his mm. grave. Not strictly horror, just weird. Anyway, love the show, only just discovered it, and uh, the back catalog has been keeping me entertained at work. Cheers, Dan. About the Murnau skull. This was in June 2015 when it was stolen. And a friend of mine even offered a reward of a thousand euro, thousand euro to receive it. Really? But nobody ever uh, admitted to, st- uh, to have stolen it. Sadly, it's done. It's back. It's, it's away. Wow. Mm-hmm. And, um, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, and um, Dan has helpfully included a couple of links in his feedback, an article about Murnau School being stolen and also a documentary about the lawsuit. So I'll include them in the show notes. But thank you to him for sending the feedback in. He seems to agree with a lot of what we've been saying, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing with the only one print surviving isn't really true. Because in the DEFA studios in East Germany, they found, after the wall was fallen, has fallen down, they found a few copies uh, which they used to restore the version we saw now. There were still a few copies around of Nosferatu. Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, Yeah, so it's like a Doctor Who situation. They're always finding um, (laughs) stashed copies. Next up, we have uh, Jeff Weir. He, uh, He said that it's a bit after these films, but an interesting documentary about German cinema called Cinema Exiles from Hitler to Hollywood. Mm. Worth checking out. And he puts a link here that I'm sure we'll put in the show notes or something. Right, Becky? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think I've seen that, but yeah. it's a long time, so I'll be interested to catch that myself. Okay. It's, it's about uh, people who emigrated to the States uh, when Hitler took over here. 
people like uh, Robert Weiss, who is a German, and some other guys. And Fritz, Fritz Lang, Lang, did he? Yeah. 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 Fritz Lang. Ernst Lubitsch as well, I think. Yeah, yeah. Ernst Lubitsch, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. Well, next up we have Chris Downs, and he says, I still think this is the scariest screen vampire ever. Only Barlow in Salem's Lot comes close, for obvious reasons. I mean, he looks so alien and unnatural. Just a brilliant creation and performance. I definitely think it's scary. Uh, that scene on the ship alone is bloody nightmarish. It's also my fave bit in the original Stoker novel, too, probably. Yeah. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um and I think you'd really enjoy the book as well, Mike, because we spoke a bit on the fan footage episode about it and about the way that the book is presented with a lot of... Found footage. Yes, you know, <laughs> like with newspaper clippings and telegrams and diary entries and how it's presented as a type of case book. And I would agree with Chris that the the scene on the ship is really mm. nightmarish because it's actually told through captain's logs of how, you know, day by day things are happening to the crew. So that's a really scary scene in the book. Yeah, I really want to read that book. I'm going to have to do this that book, one of these days. It's, it's, it's still a scary book. Yeah, it's, it's a uh, it's a it's a nicely written book as well. It's yeah. just the whole structure; it's really good. It's got a good ending too. You mm-hmm. you like the ending? It's much better than Frankenstein. Yeah, I agree with that. But that we 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 mentioned the 1931 Dracula. Don't watch that before you read the book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't want you to think that the book is like that version. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, finally, we have John Young who says, "I've watched the three of these, uh, all three of the movies we talked about." And enjoyed them all, but I have to admit, uh, watching them at 1.5 times speed is I find silent movies a bit too slow, and I think the music works better at this speed as well. <sighs> For me, as a uh, film music fan, it's very hard to uh, hear such things. <laughs> I agree with you there. <laughs> but 1.5 times speed for a silent movie, that's uh, the way we got silent movies here until the late 80s. If until the late that. 80s? Yeah. Wow. Uh, remember, remember things in TV, on TV, silent movies on TV always had this uh, speed up feeling. Wow! They use they use eighteen frames a second, and TV use uh, uses twenty five or twenty eight. Yeah. So you had al- always the speed up effect when a silent movie was shown. Until they later discovered how to uh, get this right. No, that's interesting. That's definitely one way that Mike, you can always plow through Nosferatu <laughs> again. Right. <laughs> I think that's how I'm going to start watching Nosferatu from now on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> But, um, thanks to everybody for the feedback this week. That was great. Absolutely. And, and following on from that, we have each episode been recommending podcasts that we've been listening to and we highly rate. And this week, our very own lovely Dia will be talking about his new podcast. So take it away. Yeah, uh, my podcast is called the Evil Ed Podcast, and Evil Ed was a fan sign I uh, published in from 1986 to 1980, uh, 1991, and we were famous for being the first German horror fan sign, and for being very sarcastic and uh, using very much humor to uh, bring our points over 
And we also had interviews with people like Wes Craven and Dario Argento and co. So we had also the um, reputation of being the good but it's a good fan sign. And now uh, the 30th anniversary is coming close and we decided to uh, restart the thing as a podcast. And the first number will be released on Monday, the February the 1st. And the problem is it's in German. And we are trying to get into the German amateur or no budget scene and have some directors coming up with interviews. We will uh, we will talk about movies nobody has ever seen. But sadly, as mentioned, we are Germans. We speak German, so you won't have any fun if you aren't able to understand German. But what I have done for us is uh, I brought with me our intro jingle and. We will play it, and if you want to download the podcast, just go to www.evil-at.de. That was his introduction to his new podcast. And that concludes our discussion of German horror cinema today. Next week, we're hopping over the border into France as we look at the first entry in our extreme horror series. Um, and that is Martyrs from 2008. Yay. Um, <laughs> mm -hmm. Have you seen, have you watched it yet, Mike? No, I have not. I, I've got I, hopes I for you. I've got hopes for you now because I know Matt has watched the, the remake and... He holds that the the original will you know will impress you, so I feel better right. about that. I hope so. Yeah, I hope so. And Matt's on next week as well, isn't he? Yes, and not only that, but Lucad will be back next week as well. Right. Oh. Yeah, I'm very excited about. <laughs> so it'll be great to catch up with him, and I'm sure yeah. he'll have a slew of films he's been watching that oh, he yeah. can um, <laughs> tell us about. But as usual, we would love to hear your thoughts on this week's topic or anything else horror-related. Please email your messages in MP3 or um, WEV format to unitednationsofhorror at gmail.com or just drop us a line at this address. Um, head over to the website for all of the latest podcast information, articles and reviews at unitednationsofhorror.wordpress.com. Um, also, be sure to join our Facebook group if you haven't already, and that is www.facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash UN of horror. And thanks to Dia, Mark and Mike for joining me today. And we will see you next time um, here at the United Nations of Horror. Bye. Auf Goodbye. Wiedersehen. See you. <laughs> Thank you.
traurig, doch ich weiß nicht, was mir fehlt. Manchmal in der Nacht habe ich fantastische Träume, aber wenn ich aufwach, quält mich die Angst. Manchmal in der Nacht liege ich im Dunkeln und warte, doch worauf ich warte, ist mir nicht klar. Manchmal in der Nacht spüre ich die unwiderstehliche Versuchung einer dunklen Gefahr. Ich höre eine Stimme, die Ich kann eine Stimme hören. Manchmal in der Nacht fühle ich die Macht eines Zaubers, dem ich unsichtbar berührt. Manchmal in der Nacht bin ich so hilflos und wünsche mir, es käme einer, der mich fühlt und beschützt. Manchmal in der Nacht kann ich es nicht mehr erwarten, ich will endlich eine Frau sein und Manchmal in der Nacht möchte ich verboten es erleben und die Folgen sind mir ganz allein. Ich höre eine Stimme, die mich Verlieren heißt ich befreien. Du wirst dich in mir erkennen, was du erträumst mit Wahrheit sein. Nichts und niemand kann uns trennen. Tap mit mir die Dunkelheit ein. Zwischen Abgrund und Schein verbrennen wir die Zweifel und vergessen die Zeit. Ich höre dich scheinen meinen Schaden und hat dich was wundert, das mit der Wirklichkeit versöhnt. Mein Herz ist Dynamit, das einen Funker da sehnt. Ich bin zum Leben erwacht. Die Ewigkeit beginnt heute Nacht. Die Ewigkeit beginnt heute Ich hab mich gesehnt, danach mein Herz zu verlieren. Jetzt verliere ich fast den Verstand. Totale Finsternis, ein Mehrwunggefühl hat kein Land. Einmal dachte ich, bricht Liebe den Bann, jetzt zerbricht sie gleich meine Welt. Totale Finsternis, ich falle und nichts, was mich hält. Nicht um niemand kann uns trennen. Tag 
das Wunder, das mit der Wirklichkeit besinnt. Mein Herz ist Dynamit, das hat uns Funken ersehnt. Ich bin zum Leben erwacht. Die Ewigkeit beginnt heute Nacht. Die Ewigkeit beginnt heute Nacht. Ich habe mich gesehnt, danach mein Herz zu verlieren. Jetzt verliere ich fast den Verstand. Totale Finsternis, ein Meer von Gefühl und kein Land. Einmal dachte ich, bricht Liebe den Bann. Jetzt zerbricht sie gleich deine Welt. Totale Finsternis, wir fallen um nichts, was uns hält. Totale Finsternis. Ein Meer von Gefühl und Kalat. Totale Finsternis.